Hey guys, just want to welcome you to another edition of Halftime Chat. And um really excited about my guest. He is a musician, uh, amazing bass player, but a songwriter and a producer. And his name is Derek D.O.A. Allen. Um, he's from Sacramento, North Carolina, uh, North California, but um he He's very closely associated with Chucky Booker and done a lot of tours with people like Lionel Richie. He was Janet Jackson Resonations tour with Bobby Brown, New Edition, um, it, you know, countless, countless TLC, uh, Troop Shalimar, he's taught Karen White. Uh, he was signed to Michael Jackson's um, publishing company. Um, he could produce... Um, College Girl by Bobby Brown. So it's going to be interesting talking to Derek to see um, about his career, his journey, and we take it from there. Hey, hey. How's... Hey, how you doing, Derek? Man, can you hear me, man? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> First of all, bro, let me apologize, man, bro. I apologize, man. I feel... You know, it's crazy. I was so ready for the meeting. I'm telling you, man, I was getting my stuff together. I said, okay, four o'clock is coming. And then I put the message and said, you know, your meeting has started already. I was like, <laughs> and man, from the bottom of my heart. No, now. no, no. You know what the thing is that the 90% um, of, of my guests are on the East Coast. Right. So, yeah. So right. I, 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 when I first started, I used to just have the UK time. And then I realized most people on the East Coast, either Atlanta or New York. So I, I always set the time so that they know it's Eastern time. But very gotcha. rarely do I have, um, I think it's um, Jay King, when I interviewed him. Um, yeah. He was on, he was on the West Coast and um, Brian Morgan, Arizona. Okay. Oh, so an elder bard. So I had to make sure that wow. I adjusted the timing. So, but I completely forgot that you were on the West Coast. So when I... Yes, yeah, man. I felt so bad. I was <laughs> like, you have to be kidding me. I was so ready, man. You know, just, just blew it, man. But, man, how you, man, I, I really enjoyed the, the interview you did with Karen, man. That was really dope. Oh, man. yeah. But no, yeah, Karen, um, yeah, Karen, Karen was, I mean, I think one of the things that um, about the interviews is, I think I've interviewed over a hundred people, but every person comes with, you know, I'm just listening to the story. And if, and anyone who has the story, it, it helps with the journey and stuff. And um, most of the interviews that you might see is that um, I'm not as much into the music, um, but the person behind the music, because it's easy uh -huh. to talk about music and, and records, but it's important to talk about yourself and your journey. And, yeah. and that's what we can learn from, man, because, not, we're not always going to be a mega a mega star bass player like yourself. So, but we can have trials you, and tribulations and ups and downs. You, you bass man? No, no, I don't even doubt it. Like, I think God's God took away any gift for for actually playing or singing, but He okay. gave you passion for for loving music. So that works, man. That works. You're still very much connected, man. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah. Hey, question for you. So, is there any way that like how can can people join in right now or like, how can they tap in to, to to check it out, or is that possible? Or well, no, I think what the the idea of 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 the interviews is because the um, being able to just 
um, because I used to go live and and stuff when I first started, but I realized that it did it distracted from the actual story. Gotcha. And, so you're uh, recording, you're recording and post yeah, later. It's recording and then it goes out and it goes out over seven days on YouTube. So each, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, perfect. No, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Well, cool, man. So whatever you want, man. Yeah. Um, no. Well, whatever. Just let me know, bro. I mean, I think before we start, I don't know if you had any additional light so that we can see. Because oh. is there any light in front let of me, you? Let me see. Is that any better? Yeah, that's that's a little bit better because I couldn't could barely see your face. So. <laughs> is that better? I really, I really don't. It's kind of, I, in fact, as when I'm working, it's usually darker. Oh, wow. <laughs> so let me see if I could do something like this. I don't know if this or this will help. But, um, Okay, just yeah, that's fine. Just because we can barely see, because you you know you're wearing black, and so it just yeah. But at least we can see your face. Yeah, that's good. Is that better? A little better? I don't. Yeah, that's better. That's better. Yeah, at least yeah, we can see your face and stuff. Yeah. I mean, we always start off, Derek, just because I have an internet. I mean, I'm surprised people come from from the Philippines to Japan, and so we always like to know, like where you were sort of born and raised. Okay, let me see if I can prop this up some kind of way. Okay. Get some better light here. Let's see. Let's see. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, that's better. Yeah, we at least we can see us. That's good. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so I was just wondering, I mean, just because we have an international and just to get a figure of where you were sort of born and raised. So I'm sorry. Okay. 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 I'm sorry now. Go ahead, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Because of our international audience, it's always good to get a picture as to where you were born and raised. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm born right in, in you know, Sacramento, California, okay. uh, and, you know, in the U S um, uh, you know, um, right here in the heart of Sacramento in a little community called Oak Park, Oak Park, California. And, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid playing, you know, with a with a traditional gospel background. My gospel background was more or less quartet background, not so much of the choir from a choir standpoint, but I grew up more or less listening to quartet music and grew up in that that world. Even though I went to church and my uncle had a little small little choir, Baptist choir, Baptist church, six, seven choir members. Um, I was highly and strongly uh, connected to the quartet genre of music. You what know, is that? What is like, so when a lot of people hear quartet, they think it's like some kind of barbershop thing. But yeah. quartet was a genre of music, man, that, you know, hails from the Dixie Hummingbirds, the Five Blind Boys of, of uh, you know, of, of Alabama and Mississippi, you know, the Mighty Clouds of Joy, Dixie Hummingbirds, um, the Gospel Keynotes, the Pilgrim Jubilee. So, more like a quartet group with like maybe three background singers and a lead singer and a full-blown band with more likely two guitar players, a drummer, bass player. And when it started, it started like probably started back with just a guitar player and finger step, finger uh, hand clapping and, and foot stomping back in the day. And uh, that's kind of like how I was raised. Those were my roots, the, the quartet gospel roots. And I was raised on it. And then I was raised on, you know, Thomas A. Dorsey, who created a lot of old Negro spiritual hymnals that still live to this day. 
So um, those music like that is kind of the music that I pretty much grew up on. Yeah. So the quartet music, you know, Helms, um, you know, in quartet music, man, it's a mixture of, you know, it's a mixture of gospel music. It's a mixture of blues. Mm. It's a mixture of country, um, kind of same chord progressions, um, 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 you know, just real raw, natural raw. It wasn't, you know, they did a whole lot of hollering and screaming. In fact, <laughs> the big choirs back in the day, they were not attracted to quartet singers because the choir singers we had more finesse, had more melody, harmony, more uh, runs, and quartet singers were just the ah, you know, the screamers and the squallers, and and so, so the choirs would complain that the quartet guys was coming in hollering and screaming too much. But I, I just loved that as a kid, man. Wow. So yeah, that sounds so, like in nineties R and B. Oh man, it was it was really it's really cool. And to this day, that root still lives in me. Um, because that's just, that's where the root, I grew up in being from Northern California and Northern California has serious quartet roots. So for example, you take a group and I know we're jumping a gun, but you take a group like Tony, 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 mm. Tony, Tony, Tony was a mega R&B group, right? But it was really a bona fide quartet group. It's just their style of music. Mm. When they first came out with a song called Hey Little Walter, yeah, yeah, yeah. back and do the roots and do the work. That's the song called Wait in the Water. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Hey, little water. They basically took a, a old spiritual mm. and flipped it and just became phenomenal. So because we all kind of grew up together with Sadiq and Chubu and and Carl Wheeler and Elijah Baker and Eric Pickfunk Smith. And we would just, they lived in Oakland. We lived in Sacramento and we would, our quartet group would go back and forth and we would sing. I was a, I was in the third grade playing bass in a quartet group with men that were in their thirties and in their forties. And they became my forefathers and mentors back wow. at that. And that's basically how I was raised. I was raised up into that. And that music lives in me to, to this day. Just to give us some context, because not all of us understand American education system. So third grade, you'd be how old would that be? What, six or five? I was, or? I was, I was eight years old. Eight. I was eight and a half. Yes, I was eight and a half. What? Now, I'm not sure because I, so here, you know, in America, you know, the parents, you know, if if they felt like you wasn't achieving, they would sit you, they would sit your ass back a grade. <laughs> <I'm not> <laughs> back. <laughs> so, so I may not be a good person to ask, but I was in the third grade, and my mama did hold me back in either the second grade or one. <laughs> oh, but it's like around in that era. So okay, half man playing a big old Fender jazz uh, bass guitar, um, playing everything by ear, uh, no formal training in music, even to this day. Oh, oh um, so oh, you didn't, so you didn't get lessons from your dad or from? Well, my dad, my dad was very musical. But as far as lessons is concerned, no, everything was pretty much picked up. Had a guitar. My dad brought me brought me my first guitar, and my dad was a he was a garbage man, so he packed garbage. And back in that day, he really packed garbage. You know, um, now they have trucks that do the work. Garbage yeah. man get out the trucks. They just have the machine pick yeah. up the thing. And back in that era, in that time. The garbage men used to walk from street to street and side to side, packing a big old barrel on their 
shoulder, literally taking the people's trash can, packing it, then packing it on the shoulder. That was manual labor. That was real work. So my dad was a garbage man back in that day. And he brought me a, he went to every week, they would do a trip to the, to the junk, to the, to the junkyard or whatever, where they take all the trash. Mm. And he found in the junkyard, he found an acoustic guitar and only had five strings on it. And he brought that guitar home to me because I was complaining to him. I would go to church every Sunday with my mother and I would see my Uncle John playing a a, a, a guitar, a Tesco guitar. And I would always want a guitar like that. So my dad brought me a raggedy ass acoustic guitar from the jump pile. And he expected me to play that guitar. And I was, <laughs> yeah. So I had a little attitude with my dad. I said, man, this doesn't look like. <laughs> that doesn't look like my uncle john's guitar he said hey you know if you're gonna be good you got to make it kick so make it kick like that so that was this thing and so that was my very first guitar that he brought home from his junk route and that's how i started playing guitar and um and he would pick up the guitar and he was a singer he was a great singer uh he was a quartet singer that that sung with some groups but for the mo- most part he kind of avoided singing in groups but because uh, he didn't, he kind of stayed away from the church. My mother was the one who made sure we had the church background and kept mm-hmm. us in the church. And but my dad would play around and play around on his guitar, and and um, and I just kind of got intrigued by that. And he, and I just watched him play a few chords, and that's when I started to pick up the guitar. But I found that the guitar was a little bit difficult for me. And then I went to church one day, so my uncle's church, and a deacon showed up with a bass guitar that only had four strings on it. So yeah. I said, wow, now I think I could play that thing right there because it only had four strings on it. And now I'm begging my parents to get me one of those. And finally they did, they bought me something from the pawn shop and it was a bass with four strings. And I fell in love with bass guitar, eventually going back to guitar. So I started off on guitar, didn't really do so well, went to bass guitar, kind of like made that my home eventually coming back to to guitar so that was how it started and so during this journey so when you get to say your, your high school what, yes. what what was the was it just continuing to play around but what was the idea did you have a sort of career progression like sure. gonna work in yeah. the city or something <laughs> yeah so high school you know so I never was one growing up I was never that musician that played in a lot of top 40 bands you know, um, as as a teenager or coming out of, you know, getting ready going in from junior high to high school. I never was that guy. I always was still into playing with my quartet groups. Quartet music for me was my life. So, um, um, but when I got into high school, I think it was the 10th, 11th grade, um, I, 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 I wanted to play in the jazz band, in the jazz ensemble. And the good thing about it was now at this time, I'm a pretty decent bass player. I'm not like some of these, you know, 16, 17 year old kids you're seeing on YouTube now that are just <laughs> crazy. <laughs> these guys now are just bananas, man. They were just, <laughs> just bananas. But I was I was decent. And what I had was my ear. My ear was super strong. And I knew I wanted to play in the jazz band. So in 11th grade. I spoke to the jazz teacher and the good thing, he was a bass player. The instructor was a a bass player. So I asked him if I, you know, even though I didn't know how to read music, 
you know, would he allow me to be in a jazz band? And his initial answer was no. And then I remember going to class, just sitting in on his class. And I told him, I said, I could play all this music that you guys are doing. They were doing, you know, like, like charts like Spain, Watermelon Man. I mean, just the traditional peg, you know, just, just that kind of stuff, you know, Steely Dan music. And I said, I could play this stuff. So one day after class, he sent me down. He says, man, let me hear you play. So I start playing and he was really blown away. He said, oh my gosh. He says, it says, dude, it's a, it's a damn shame because I'm hearing you play all this amazing stuff and you don't even know what the hell you're doing. He said, but the, he said, but the, the, the sad part about it is this. He said, you sitting down here playing all this amazing stuff that you don't know what you're doing. He says, now I can sit down and write everything you're out, everything out you're playing. I can write it out. Once I write it out, I can play it. If I was able to write it out, I could play everything you're playing. And I'm pretty sure I can write it out. He said, but the sad part is this. Once they take that track, that chart away from me, I'm lost as a dog. He says, but with you, they can put that chart in front of your face. You can still play it. And then when they remove it, you can still play it. He said, dude, you're an amazing player. I would strongly advise you to take the next next step and learn reading. He says, but I want you into my band. You don't have to be required. You don't have to re be required to know how to read my band. So what I would do for you is every day I would give you the recordings of the songs we would be doing for the next day. So he would advance me cassette tapes, mm -hmm. go home, listen and learn to be ready for that morning for band class. And that's what I did. So in band class, I'm sitting up ready. I'm going through it. Everybody else is trying to figure it out and write <laughs> it, you know, but me, I practice all night. So I'm ready to play. I got everything down, you know, every, whatever it was. So that's how I was able to play in jazz ensemble and the jazz band. And we were a pretty good band. I was proud of that moment. But you said, he said something about the sad thing is that, um, you don't know what you're playing. Now, did he mean that you're playing without understanding the connecting the emotions to it? Because I'm just trying to see the, sad this as a... part, you see, the sad part didn't have nothing to do with me. It had to do with him. Okay. That part was because he's a phenomenal bass player. He can only play by reading. Oh, he was talking about himself. Okay. I oh, thought he was. Okay. He can only play by reading a chart. Me, I, I didn't need no chart in order to play what I was playing. Because you can put the chart in front of me, I'm playing it. You can take it away, I'm still playing it. See, a lot of readers, once you take that music away from them, they're lost because they're 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 they can't rely on their ear, and the only way they can uh, relate to that music is reading it, right? So people who play by ear, they rely totally on the strength of their ears and what they hear. Now, I'm not saying for me it worked. For me it worked. Do I have any regrets about it? Of course I do, because now as I get ready to hit my 60s, I want to I want to conduct. I want to do orchestra. There's a lot of things that I want to do that I got to go back and learn now because it's going to require the theory that I never got. So I put that on hold for the most part for all my life because I didn't need it because most jobs I went on just put give me let me hear it and I'm going to play it exactly like you guys recorded it. 
on everything I've ever done, I rely solely on my ears. But now, as in my older years, I want to get into a whole nother part of music because I'm in the scoring now. I'm in the arranging. I know I know how to do it. I just don't know what it is. I can't tell you what it is, and that's the part that I got to get. Okay, and and I think what is interesting there is that I you know I, I, you know I've I, my background would be going to a Pentecostal church, and and I know that. Um, the band could just go from one song to another. Sure. They don't need to know the music. And sure. even if you don't know it, you can just hear what's going on and just jump in. Um, but I've been to sort of traditional environments where, okay, what are we playing next? And they stop. Okay, start from the beginning. They need someone to intro it. And it's almost as if they had to read what's going on. Exactly, yes. And and, and, I, and I've always wondered... Um, is there is there more of a skill to be able to just hear and just like oh this is where we are I know how to flow with it and just almost almost like surfing on the music as opposed to um, having to be timed and have to be mechanic to, to with with it. Um, I, 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 that's a great man. That's a beautiful question. I'm so glad you you asked it because I think I think it's fifty fifty. I think they're both skills. Because everybody's not blessed, man, just with an ear for music to be able to hear music naturally. And in, in, in commercial pop music, I, I would say probably 75 to 80 to 95 percent of the musicians probably are not readers. Just because, especially now with the technology, mm. and now you can take your phone and make beats and these kids, it's just a plug and play method. So the theory part is not really even more so now is not that important to them, mm. right? Man, that's a blessing, man. That's a that's a, a gift from God. Everybody don't have that. Just like everybody don't have the talent to read these incredible mind-blowing charts. Man, that, that's, that's, a, that's a thing that I never had, you know, and I knew, I know that if I, if I had that with the way I'm into arranging and, and people in, you know, different orchestrators that I look, um, conductors that I love and listen to, you know, from Claire Fisher to Jeremy Lubbock to oh, Benjamin Lubbock, <laughs> the people I love, I work with Jeremy and people that I love, if I only knew what they knew, and put it to what I know, I, I think my gift would even soar even that much higher. Okay. Because it's all math, man. It's numbers. Yeah. The numbers is even numbers before it's sound. But it's like this chord works with this chord. You put this number chord with this number chord. Let's see what sound it makes. And they play it. Oh, that's interesting. That sounds great. Let me write it out. We'll use that. Versus somebody who's relying on their ears to to kind of hear it the way they hear it and arrange it, so it it, it kind of works both ways. They're both they're both incredible gifts. Yeah, now I'm a massive cl uh, classical fan, uh, especially people like Mozart, Beethoven, yes. and the fact that someone like Mozart before you know as a kid to be able to hear all the sounds and then he's able to write it out every instrumental part down, and I think that's almost beyond understanding. Um, so he wasn't he had no limit. Now, there are a few people who have that creative space where they can see everything and write it down, um, especially if you're conducting an orchestra. But I do wonder the difference between those who learn how to read the music and write music and are technical, as opposed to the, the creative people who 
who can um who can just hear something and like oh, I can just hear this melody in my head and just play it out and not know the chords and notes but just just they know they they, they just know what they're hearing and they're playing it out and it's almost like a there's a difference between a gift a, a gift that you get you know whether it's from God or anything but a, just a gift sure uh, as opposed to somebody who's trained and learns it's like okay I know how to play this that piece and I can play both Be- Be- Beethoven I can sort of construct something similar but it's not a gift it's my it's just I'm technically trained in doing that and 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 I and I do wonder how do you weigh up the 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 not the gift as opposed to the sort of the training I, I gotta be honest with you because I'm on the gifted side mm. I'm on the gift side and I know how I'm so grateful for what I've been blessed blessed with. I mean, I have, I'm into scoring, I'm into arranging, uh, I'm into all of that. And, you know, I could send you a piece of music of something I did just right here in my studio on a, on a uh, you know, a, a 32 key keyboard and it's orchestrated beautifully and it's arranged beautifully. Um, or I could send you music and you would think that that whoever did this is a serious, serious keyboard player. Because I'm not a serious keyboard player. My main thing is bass. Mm-hmm. I understand guitar. I play guitar. So I understand chord melody. I understand vocal melody. I understand harmony. I hear how it works. So I, re- I rely on that, even from arranging. So all my string stuff is arranged one note at a time. And I might tr- record it one note at a time. Because even though I'm not the guy... You know, I'm not no Kevin Bond, who's my brother, or, you know, no Alex Allison Droney that's just going to get on the keyboards and just go crazy. You know, I'm not that guy, you know, mm-hmm. but I can sit down and arrange it and put it together. Right. Mm-hmm. But so that's the gift part. So I'm, I only wish that, and if I had that theory side, because I listened to everybody you just named. And I'm thinking like, oh, my my favorite in the world is Claire Fisher. He's my most favorite. Just then second, maybe you see the Jeremy Lubbock or Benjamin Wright. I'm not really sure. But Claire, who did all the print stuff and did okay. just so great, just great. I just listened to it and I'm like, dude, what are you thinking about when you do those arrangements, man? How, what are you thinking about? Now, I've never set up. I don't have an orchestra. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a conductor. And I, I love it. There's a brother right now named Derek Hodge, man, who's a phenomenal musician, bass player that I'm watching from a distance. He's, he's a good friend of mine. I just watch him and I'm so, I admire him what he's doing so much because he's living that dream right now and doing conducting orchestras. And so that's something that I want to get into. And I'm mm. praying to God that I, I, you know, that I can get into it, you know, I could because if I could just take what I know and then add the 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 theory part to what it is I to what it is I'm doing, I think it could just really elevate, you know, elevate m- my creativity and things I think about, and I'm able to hear different because now I know what it is math- mathematically um, from a number system from the theory part, but not only that from the ears part. Because I'm thankful for the the if the gift that God has blessed me with. Man, mm. I've been touring, I've I've was a tour musician for over 30 years playing mm. with so many different people. And 
No one has ever said, Derek, here's the chart. <laughs> they said, hey, bro, learn these songs off the album. And that artist wants you to learn them records exactly like them records. So if you're coming in there thinking you're just going to do what you want to do, you're going to be sent home real fast, my brother. Mm -hmm. So they want their records play like the records before you come chiming in thinking you're going to add you to it. No, 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 no. Learn them dang records, bro, because mm -hmm. if not, you're going to be getting the early exit to the crib. And then once they give you some freedom to kind of like spread out a little bit, that's good. So that all became from comes from the, my, my, the gift of hearing. I tell people all the time, if you can hear it, you can play it. Yeah, yeah. Not if you can play it, you can hear it. Mm -hmm. But if you can hear it, if you can sing it, right, even if you can't play a piano or a guitar, you can go to a piano and do just do one note at a time and figure it out. So if you're singing the melody to A, B, C, D, E, F, G, if you can hear it, you should be able to go to that piano mm. and find whatever key you're starting it in and sound it out slowly and, you know, and carefully and make sure you're playing the right notes. Star Spangled Banner, whatever, National Anthems, whatever mm. it is. If you can hear it, I tell everybody, if you can hear it, you can play it. And I stand by that. Yeah, and 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 I and I guess my my question then becomes just because when I've been able to speak to say songwriters, so like a Timmy Gatlin, and when yes. I spoke to him about creating the the get the guy album and yeah. um, I, um, I like or piece my love, and he's like the words just came down to me and I just wrote it out in five minutes, and I'm like, but yeah. you know, and he says, look, I don't know how it happened; it was a gift from God. I just heard all the words and wrote it down and then it almost and even when i spoke to um uh, malvin riley jr about when he was writing all the hits for ready for the world he said sure. he was sat by the piano and all it just felt like he got like neo from matrix it just sure. downloaded so it became a sense of well it's a, it that's a that seems like a gift that you just have where there's an amazing creativity but you, you they're not working extra hard thinking out one line writing it out and and, sure. and trying to and trying to move things around and I, and I wonder when you're talking about moving to another level of being a conductor or an orchestra and I'm like well if you've already have the inspiration of the music inside when you partner up with somebody who knows how to um almost like if you're if you're a script writer and then you say well I, I here's the script here's how I seen it and then you get a director who says well I know how to get the people to interpret what you've said as opposed to being a scriptwriter, then saying, "Well, I'm going to have to direct and produce." I mean, does that because does that limit you to conduct an orchestra alongside somebody who knows how to take your words and then say, "Well, let me write it out for you as you speak," and I'll and I'll almost like a um, Aaron and Moses kind of thing. Like, sure, sure. Well, you know, that's man, dude. That's great because yeah, they, you know, they're they're um, they do have like the conductors might have somebody and. I've, they have it there. There's a title. I can't think of it right now. That just basically score it out, mm. score it out, and then they give it to the conductor where he doesn't have to do that part of the work, right? Um, and um, I had a chance to work with the the great Paul Reiser, that that did a whole lot. That did everything Motown back in the day. He's the last original funk brother that's living. Wow. So I had a chance to work with with Paul Reiser and. Um, you know, um, and and actually, we worked when I was working. Produced this artist by the name of Kim K E M, okay. and we 
on the Love Always Win album, Paul Reiser came in and and conducted and some arrangements to two of the records, and we actually recorded the records at Motown, the Motown Museum. That's the first time they had opened up the Motown Museum since 1973. This happened in 2000, I want to say 2002, something like that. But um, Paul Reiser had a script writer. He basically charted everything out, gave it to Mr. Reiser. Mr. Reiser had like a like 20 piece orchestra, including a, a harp, a harpist, and mm. uh, uh, it just just was just amazing. And I'm sitting here watching him do the work to a body of work that I was part of creating. So Paul Reiser had his script writer pretty much do that work. Then Paul Reiser conducted the band. Gave they gave the charts to each individual players, and then Paul Reiser conducted the, the did the the uh, the uh, the orchestra for the production. So you so with yeah. So now there's that part of it that I definitely want to learn. I want to know it all. To be yeah. honest with, you. I want to be able to know it all. I want to be able to write it. So this is why I have some te- some teachers that when I when I get ready to sit down because one thing with me. In my earlier stage of my career, I was never—I never had the patience to sit down and learn the theory of music. I always wanted to plug in and play. I just wanted to plug and play for the whole my most of my career. Mm-hmm. So now I'm at the point to where, all right, Derek, you've fallen in love with this whole another part of music, and if you really want to do it, you have to really go back and educate yourself. So I have some some really cool people that I'm getting ready to sit down with and just take a couple of years of my life and yeah. just get it and learn it. I'll probably be able to pick it up really fast because I do understand it. I hear mm. it. You know, I, I get it. I, uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to take me that long, but I definitely want to understand all facets of it to your questions that you're asking. So yes, there are individuals that have certain jobs to do when it comes down to, um, to an orchestration performance or orchestra performance. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Individuals that, that have parts to play. So, I mean, I mean, this is, it was good just to get that sort of understanding. And, and if, and, and I think it hops back to when you did get to join the, the, the jazz ensemble in high school, was it still just most of a, a hobby, you know, instead you could have done football, basketball, but you, oh, you, man. you, play, you play jazz. Uh, what was what, what, Man, you're all in my head, man. Let me tell you, I wanted to be a football player, dude. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to play football. I never, you know, I music, growing up as a kid, music all through my house, but still growing up as a kid, I wanted to play football, and I always thought I would be a football player, and my brother would always say, nah, man, you need to do music, and wow. I'm going to tell you that everything changed. was in 81, I think I was in ninth grade, I was in freshman it was the year it was 81. And um President Ronald Reagan had been shot at during that time. Oh, during yeah, yeah, the yeah. Same yeah. day. That day right there. I'll never forget it. That's the day my life changed because that day, that morning of that day, we were getting ready for football season. The basketball players were getting ready at school, and we were out in the back. We were dunking volleyballs and it was foggy. And we were just slam dunking, you know, very athletic. So we just 
back there having fun. And I remember I went up to dunk a basketball, dunk a volleyball. And all I remember is coming up and just hit my leg snapping and oh. twisting. It was like a Joe Theismann type of injury. Oh. I came down and just jacked it up. Next thing you know, they're rushing me in the hospital. I'm on the operating table the same time that the whole Ronald Reagan commotion is going on. And it was so bad because my mother, she was crying, worried about me, and the whole world was worried about Ronald Reagan. But wow. all my doctors around me, they were supposed to be tending to me, but they were up there looking <laughs> at the <damn> TV. <laughs> and my mama was cussing all of them out, cussing everybody out. So I'll never forget that day, man. Wow. And that was the end of anything I thought about was uh football anything and it went from there when i wanted to do so a freshman right mm. so it wasn't until i was a junior was my first year playing in the jazz jazz band uh, yeah junior was my first year so sports is over took me months to heal from this crazy accident rebuilt my leg and since then it was just completely all about music um, getting out of high school, I hated high school, but okay. graduating and, you know, trying to be a, a musician. And um, that's how it happened. Now, I, 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 on the side note, so I'm a therapist and I mainly work with under 21. And so what was it like losing what you assumed was going to be your career and, and especially having to heal um, and before you fo change your focus to music? You know what? It was, it was very, it was gut wrenching, man. Because when I tell you, I was a diehard football fan. I mean, everything about me was. I thought it was I went to play football. Everything about me, you know, was 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 playing football. But I also loved the musical part of about it. Um, when that went away, it was hard. But I also knew I had, I had another thing that I loved just as much. So you know, with the help of of my mother and through my brother and the encouragement. You know, I, I was able to make it through it once. I think I was able to make it through it once um, I was healed because I had a cast on. Man, I was in the hospital for a month with a wow. broken, for a bro with a broken, just a broken leg. I was in there for a month. Yeah. And it was, you know, back then, man, it's totally different now, you know. So back then, man, I had a cast all the way from my from my foot all the way to, to, my, to my waist. It was crazy. And then I was still in the group. So as I was healing, I was doing concerts with my quartet group. So I was still playing with this broke leg. And, and I think that's what just encouraged me to say, you know, when I get out this thing, I, I really want to, this is going to be my life from here on out. And I, that's when I knew, you know, wow. so it was mentally it was difficult because I knew I wasn't going to fulfill a football player's dream. And I'm kind of glad because at that time, football players were only making like $12,000 a year. So <laughs> Yeah, but at least they were getting paid. I don't know if musicians were paid. making were musicians no, getting paid. No, 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 no. I wasn't getting paid a dime when I was <laughs> so, I'm telling you, my career, my career didn't start until I, you know, left, graduated and moved to LA with my best with my with my best friend. Oh, I'm sorry, man. When when I left and graduated and moved to LA in 1985, that's when my career started. So how did what 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 took you out of Sacramento? Um, and did when did you think actually you know this is it? I'm going to follow a, a life dream of becoming a professional musician as opposed to that's a hobby. Now I need to get a job and 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 you know. Well, our our, our 
longtime city hero here was this brother by the name of Robert Brookins, who from the 80s was a mega producer, 90s mega producer. He had a couple of his own records. And at 17, he was you know playing with George Duke and Stanley Clark and, mm-hmm. and everybody. And so he was our hometown hero. He still he's 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 passed away. But um, he was our mentor. And I know that just watching him and then the opportunity, Sacramento, where I live, was very farm town. The opportunities were slim and none. And so I knew that if I wanted to pursue music, I was going to have to go where the opportunities was happening. The good thing was that I, I'm, I'm literally about 370, 75 miles from L.A., mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, w- I, I wasn't going to be too far. At first, me and my friend, we, we would just commute. We would just go to L.A. just to smell the air, man. We would go <laughs> to LA with with we, we knew that during high school, you know, um, after high school, I got a job. Mom's like, listen, dude, I don't know what you're going to do, but you got to get a job. So <laughs> I got an industrial job where I was sanding waterbeds and spray painting waterbeds, coming home all messed up. And. <laughs> You know, minimum wage at that time, I don't know, was three thirty-five an hour. I can't, <laughs> but I do know um, that I, that that wasn't going to be me. And mm-hmm. so, me and my best friend, we said, you know, we thought we just had this vision of L.A. and Hollywood was that we thought that if you show up there, <laughs> you know. So, me and my buddy would literally save up some money we would make it from our jobs. We didn't have no car, no transportation, and we literally would get on a Greyhound bus. Now, at that time, I didn't have, I was one of those bass players that didn't have a bass rig. Bass players used to play out of PAs, they used to play out of like a PA system with a, with a PA board and two big old column speakers. That, that was my bass amp. <laughs> so, and my buddy had a little Pearl electric drum set. They had the Simmons drum set, you know, the goo, 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 goo with a brain. He had that. And I had this big old PA. We would literally, man, find maybe twice, twice a month. We would go down to Greyhound, put all that stuff on the bus, have the bus, catch the bus to a Greyhound to Sunset Boulevard in, 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 in Hollywood get dropped off there with nowhere to go, <laughs> nothing to do. So we would get a cab. We would find the cheapest hotel we could find to stay in. And at that time, the money we had, we would have to go from Hollywood down to Slauson or Inglewood or, or in the hood and find a room like 1605 <laughs> a night type of thing where, where, where the dope dealers, the prostitutes were, <laughs> You know, and, and the, the, the gangbangers, but we would go have a double bed. And what we would literally do for the weekend is we would set up our equipment in the room and just play and open the door thinking we was going to get discovered. <laughs> and it didn't work. But what it did work for, it worked for all the dope dealers. We'd be like standing outside watching the prostitutes, <laughs> gangbangers. They would be like, oh, you young dudes, y'all going to make it. Then, then, then by that Sunday, we would pack up our stuff, get a cab back to Greyhound, and come on back to Sacramento. We did that for months and months and months. Nothing ever happened until we got 
a call from a local guy in our city saying he had a, a gig to do for artists in LA. And he used myself and my best friend. And we went down there and did a real kind of a real gig for like, you know, like a weekend, but we, but we rehearsed for a whole week. So now we're down there with a place to sleep where we have a gig to do. And then we did one gig at a place called Cover Girl. And then the next time he got booked to play at the Roxy. Wow. So now we're like, wow, the Roxy, this is big time, you know? Yeah. And so our second big gig was at the Roxy. Well, while in that band, we were networking. So we met a keyboard player, a cool white cat who was just really cool, who loved the way we played. He said, hey, man, um, do you guys, are you guys thinking about moving to L.A.? He says, if so, you guys, I, you know, I'm trying to do a two, a four-piece band. I got another keyboard player, and I would love to you, you, use you two. I played drum, I mean bass. My best friend played drums. And he said, man, we could put a band together and play. Now, he lived in Irvine, California. Mm -hmm. The place we were going to play in is Newport Beach. Yeah, so we yeah. said, wow. And he said, listen, man, my my folks got a big old house. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So he said, you guys are more than welcome. So now, me and my best friend, these two little black kids, <laughs> with this, you know, um, this 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 uh, modern uh, middle class upper class white family in this Brady Bunch looking house. In Orange County. <laughs> oh, dude, in Orange County. There you go, in Orange County. Yeah. And it's like, when we got to the house, we were like, oh, <laughs> this is, you know, man, we, we thought we were like in heaven. So they welcomed us in and we actually, uh -huh. that was the beginning of like our career. So once we tasted that, we saved our money. Uh, my, my, my best friend's brother bought us a little Pinto and we packed everything up we had and and roll down Orange County and stay with this family that welcomed, welcomed us in. They treated us like family. Wow. And we were playing, we was playing a gig every week and we were making like 75 bucks or something like that. But to us, that was something. Yeah. But eventually we wanted to move closer to LA. And then, so that's when our journey began. And I'm telling you, two and a half years of a struggle, then things started to really. Wait, how long were you with, with the family? Did you stay at the house? We stayed, we stayed there. About four and a half months. Because wow. what was happening is, you know, you know when you feel like you were you're wearing your welcome out. You know what <laughs> I'm yeah. We we was getting those hints like, uh, so um have you how how's uh, any work in LA? <laughs> so my boy was like, Hey man, you know, we you know, we just knew it was time to go. So but what we would do during the day, we would get in our pinno during the day. We would play on a Thursday and Friday and Saturday. But what we would do, man, is go down to L.A. and try to meet people during the day and just drive back. And we ended up meeting people in L.A. And we met a couple of people there that was really interested in us. And so after four months, four and a half months or so, it was time and we found another living situation. And then when we didn't have a living situation, we was living in the car. We were sleeping in different parks, Hollywood Park, wherever we could, wherever we could sleep in. And uh, it was a struggle, man. It really was a struggle. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I lived in Redondo Beach in Cobra City for a while. Oh, uh, so, so yeah, and I, uh, uh, yeah. So I know, I know, Ari's so, County. So, well. so, so our struggle ended in Redondo Beach after living with so many people. And when I tell you, we lived in harm's way. We were in danger zones, man. We were living in 
and dope houses that we didn't have <laughs> who we were living in. But wow. our last of it was in Redondo Beach. It was a lady that took us in with her two kids that lived in Redondo Beach. And um, the, she had a room. She had two kids, a boy and a girl. And she then she had a room. So they had three rooms. She put the little babies in a room and gave me and my friend a room to stay in. Wow. While we were living there, my friend got a phone call from this brother I was just telling you about, Robert Brookins. At the time, Robert Brookins was working with Stephanie Mills. He produced Where's the Love? And he and Stephanie Mills had a duet called Where's the Love? But at the time, he was the musical director for Stephanie Mills at this time. Wow. So he was looking for my my partner that played drums. He was looking for Flip. And he found him. He called Flip and said, hey, I'm in North Carolina, need a drummer. I've been looking all over LA for you. He basically came back and got us from Sacramento. Well, my friend, right? And he says, I want to know if you're interested in playing with Stephanie Mills. This was Stephanie Mills was through the roof at the time. Okay. So the very next day, I'm watching my friend be picked up in a long stretch white limousine. What? You kidding me? Being flown to North Carolina. His life changed like that. And so what he told me, he says, Derek, for two and a half years, we've been struggling, but thankful to Robert Brookins, we're not going to struggle no more. He says, I'll be sending you money every week. He said, keep the pinto running until I get back. I got us. You ain't got nothing to worry about. So by him taking care of me, sending me money so I could kind of maintain, live, look for work. Our struggles was over. My life was easier. The stress was off. So now his career is skyrocketing. Now he's on world tours now, just that fast. And he's also looking after me every week, sending me money. Now I'm able to go find some gigs in LA and help the, the lady out in Redondo, help her out until I'm able to get something happen. About six months later, God opened the doors for me with uh, a situation with um, this band called 13 Cats that was uh, the original members from Sheila Ezek's band. And I met these guys and they put me in their band. They were working on a record deal and that didn't work out. So then we became the side band for Shalimar. Then from Shalimar, that's when my career started as a side man. And then went from Shalimar to, to Troop, to Karen White, to Janet Jackson, to it started <laughs> okay i mean just yeah I, you know just hearing this stuff and and i think one one of the things that to me sounds amazing is the cuz there there are some parts where your friend flip would have gotten the gig and probably for a couple of weeks hooked you up and then that's it what was it about your friendship that he said, you know, it's do or die we're both into this together we, we grew up together since we was in the third grade we we were kids. We this was my friend. We 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 since the third grade. This was my best friend. We we, we played in the quartets groups together. We traveled. His mentors were my mentors. My mentors was his mentors, and so he had no problem making sure that I was taken care of, and he was sending me money every week. You know, make sure the car was because we had a raggedy Pinto. When I tell you, that, <laughs> but it was cool because we were able to sleep in it and live in it. And I mean, there's days and times when we would we went hungry. I mean, we would go to the park on like Labor, Labor Day and Memorial Day 
and and watch the smell the aroma of smoke from the barbecue and we would look to see if a little kid dropped a little hot dog wow. meat chicken meat off the off on the grass and we was picking it up man we were eating it that's how hungry we were that's how we were str- struggling but we both of us had made up in my mind that we were not going to let our families know how bad we were doing and how tough it was because they were going to insist that we come back home and we left with nothing. We said, listen, we damn sure ain't going to go home with nothing. We're going home with something. So it took almost two and a half years. So when he got his thing and I'm watching him now with Stephanie Mills, just like, you know, this is my brother, man. I'm like, this is my, this is my dude, you know, and watching him do his thing and make money now. He went from making nothing to making like $1,200 a week. And back wow. then, yeah, back then that's that's our money. We were making, we were lucky if we got $100, you know, every other month making gigs. We were lucky what we, what we were doing. But we knew we were a young bass player, a young drummer in the city of LA. And we knew we had a talent and we knew that we wanted people to know who we were. So we just thank God for it. It was a blessing. God had his arms around us, man. Yeah. He had his arms protection. Was there any, and 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 this is because I I remember when I spoke with Daryl Simmons about how when he know when he first met Kenny Edmonds and he noticed that he was so much gifted in as a as a songwriter and stuff that for him there was no hint of jealousy. It was like I need to cleave to him and learn from him, and and because I know that by him I'm just gonna it, he's gonna help me get better. And I and, and I and you know when you mentioned the story about Flip getting picked up, it was there any part of you that was either jealous or or thinking why not me or because as I said we're human beings and 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 you know it, it's a remarkable story but just to you know how was it for you just to see that? That's an amazing man, dude. You 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 already know a story to my life so. When Flip got that call, we were all in this lady's house in Redondo and we were watching TV. And when the Flip got that phone call from Robert Brookings, um, I know Robert Brookings too, because he was a local homeboy. We all, he was our mentor. So Flip is talking to Robert Brookings on the phone and I'm looking at him and I'm watching his reaction and I'm hearing him say, oh, really? Stephanie Mills? Yeah, I'm down. Stuff like that. So I'm thinking like, Wow, this is both of us gonna, you know, we're we're we we come together, you know. And so when he got off the phone, he said he was telling me what, what it was. And I asked him, I said, So what what about a bass player? You know, and he's like, D, D, they're gonna they're using this guy named Gordon Jones, who is phenomenal. Bless him, he just passed away recently, but who was a phenomenal bass player from Sacramento, Robert's right hand man. Okay. So I'm like, oh, wow. I think I was more, um, I'm definitely not jealous, not not even. I just think I was hurt more from the separation. I'm losing my dude. My mm-hmm. dude is leaving me, you know, more than anything. It was more or less a thing like that. But happy is all get out for him because I know this is going to be life changing for him. You know, not even expecting him to do anything for me. But it's because of our brotherhood. He turned around and made sure that that point was made that, hey, dude, 
we are going to be taken care of. We are going to be taken care of. I didn't ask him to do that. I wasn't expecting that. I was more happy for the for the fact that, man, you know, my dude. And I was sad because I spent 20, two and a half years with my best friend. Now he's leaving me, you know, uh, like hmm. sad because more of that. But no jealousy, no nothing, man. I was his biggest fan. He's my biggest fan, even to this day. You know what I'm saying? And um, so that's a great question. But no, no. And he turned around and said, Derek, but you don't have nothing to worry about, man. I'm going to be sending you money every week. And the only thing I say, thank you, bro, but you don't, you know, no. Man, we've been struggling for two and a half years. We ain't going to never struggle another day in our life. And you know what? We never did. Wow. Today, to this day. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, because the only other person I've heard of this was uh, Jimmy and Terry. And, and you know, and we don't hear enough about brotherhood and about this, that sort of like we've got our back and and not feeling that you've made it and, and you've forgotten me and, and stuff. Yes. And, that, and, that's, yes. and, and that's really important for us to be able to hear and, and see. And, you know, and for those of us who may be Christians might think and see, well, what in the midst of all that, you know, what's in my heart? And am I being tested, you know, in the midst of, of exactly. that? Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, so, so when this all went, went so, how, so how then um, from getting with the, with, um, going on tour with, with Shalomar, so when did, when did Flip stop sending you money? When did you feel like, okay, yeah, Flip, <laughs> okay, now. I'm hey, actually... I'm tell you, when, when Flip, when I told Flip, bro, Stack your money, I'm good, was because about six months after I got the call to be in this band with Sheila E's ex-band, band called 13 Cats, and we were trying to get a record deal with Motown with Steve Buckley at the time. It was This was way back in the 80s, and we were rehearsing every week. So guess what? We were getting paid, uh, for, I was getting paid $400 a week just to rehearse. <laughs> So to me, I you know, I was I'm in heaven. Now I bought my own car, I parked the pinto somewhere. <laughs> Dude, you know, I said, I told Flip, I said, bro, I'm good. I got this. And he was happy for me. Mm-hmm. But we wasn't doing nothing but rehearsing in Mount Holland Hills and this investor who was vesting his money into us to rehearse every day. That was mm-hmm. our job, five, six, seven days a week, just to just to rehearse. And when we didn't get the deal from for we did a we did a uh, showcase at the Roxy, and we didn't get a record deal, um, we decided to um, all decided and started playing with um, Shalomar. I did some other side stuff like I got a call to play with Elder Barge. Uh, he did a thing on a TV show at the time it's called Sidekick. Side yeah, what is yeah, that? Sidekick. Yeah, Sidekick. There was a thing. It was a TV series back in the day. Okay, and. You know, it was just like a one-off type of thing. Okay. And the same band, the same band we did, we were his house band, right? Or his fake band, TV band for the show. Okay. Then, but that same band, we went on ahead and did. um, Oh, O'Brien called me and and asked me to play some. O'Brien was another dude that looked out for me and, you know, gave me a position in his band as just on a Soul Train thing and. Uh, playing guitar. He had an incredible bass player named Melvin Davis, who was just one of the world's greatest right now. Um, um, that was one of the things. But we went and started playing with Shalomar when they did the circumstantial evidence. So this was like right after Howard Hewitt left. And uh, they had Delisa Davis, Sidney Justin, and Mickey Free. Mm. And um, that was like my 
first really initial kind of touring thing, you know, with Shalimar. Yeah. And, and then I, Shalimar just kind of sprouted. Yeah, and, and, I, and I just wanted to go back because um, L's been one of my favorite guests. And uh, but what was it? Was he has he just finished doing Rhythm of the Night and I like and um, all that stuff when you when you met him? Did you know this is L the Barge from the Barge? And so no, I, I I knew of him was a fan all my life, but okay, you know, know him um, like that. We just happened to be a TV band that got hired and we got picked to do it, and. <clears throat> And um, it was it was it was crazy for me because I felt like a movie star. Because I remember, <laughs> I remember before the episode showed, man. I remember coming home, flying home, and I rented me this limousine, man. At the oh, yeah. time, the limousine was probably like fifty dollars an hour, and my mother had never rode in the limousine, so everybody was talking about me going to be on this big old show. <laughs> so, so I came home, got a limousine. And my mom was in the house. She was living in a duplex. So I run in the house. I said, mama, 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 come on out. I'm going to take you for a ride. And my mom said, well, baby, I got the rollers. And I said, no, nah, you can't keep in there, baby. This clock is running out, baby. Get on in here now. We're going to run this whole hour in this limo. So, so you know, did that. And that, it was I'll never forget that week, man. That was a great great week and so that show aired so that was my big tv kind of mm. thing and so now man kind of making a name you know if people you know one thing i tell a lot of people who are struggling and trying to come up and trying to do things is and when people don't believe in them don't get discouraged i understand it people only believe in stuff that they can see mm. people don't believe in your dream they never will nobody's going to believe in your dream but they're going to believe in something with some substance in it in other words I've had I've had goals. I've had, you know, I've shared my goals with my mother and with other people. Ah, yeah, you know, oh yeah, oh yeah, homeboy, yeah, yeah, you know. But it wasn't until they start seeing stuff to where they would take the reality serious or take the dream serious. Mm-hmm. Right. Now you also have to be careful, you and you have to say, Oh, now you want to believe in me. We cool. We gonna be cool. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? But the ones who believed in you and never doubted you and supported you, you know, them the, them the ones you keep close. But uh, that's when kind of things people say, oh, man, this thing is really serious. Oh, you're really doing it. Oh, man, saw you on TV. Big network. It was a big series on like, wow. like ABC. You know, it was huge, you know, and I got some good shots. You know, I went to <laughs> I went to there's a store, uh, a store here called Oak Tree, man. I went and. Got me an oak tree outfit, man. It was clean. <laughs> you know, I had my hair all did up and everything. And it was something special, man. So yeah, but and then I was a fan of Elder Barge. So that was my first major thing. First wow. major. Yeah. And then so you know, so when did it start to get uh, sort of more stable? Because after you said you did stuff with Shalomar, but it wasn't the Jeffrey Daniels, Howard no. Hewitt, and Jody Watley Shalomar. So I don't know people. No, it wasn't that. It was the Mickey Free. Uh, Mickey Free did Dancing in the Sheets with 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 um, Delisa Davis mm. and Howard. And shortly after Howard, I think left the group, and they did another record. They they got Sidney Justin in the group, Delisa Davis, Mickey Free, and they hired the band to that, support them to come in, and we yeah supporting band, and 
we did that. Then we did Arsenio Hall. That was my first time doing Arsenio Hall show. Wow. That was exciting. You know, and then we did, then we would tour. We did some tour. We did some touring and it was, we went to Japan. My first trip to Japan was with them. And um, uh, me and uh, Sydney Justin, man, we're like, we're like this to this day. So it was, it was just great, man. That, that's when things started to kind of move. What, what, I, and I, what was it like then? Because being, because I, I, as I said, I lived in, 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 in Redondo and Cobra City. And so it wasn't, you know, I, I've seen, you know, you see Shaq, you see Chris Tuck, you see everyone and you stop becoming starstruck because you're mingling and stuff. But for sure. yourself from Sacramento and struggling and now you're seeing Asenio, um, you're seeing sure. Elder Barge and seeing this stuff. How did 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 you stop being starstruck, or did you, were you constantly grounded, or what what was it like? Well, I de- I definitely was constantly grounded. And once again, man, you're asking a great question because my story, the way my story goes, is when I left Sacramento, I promise you, man, I never ever thought I would be coming back to Sacramento. I thought I just wanted to go to Hollywood and just you know, just become this rock star cat and just do the whole thing. But I didn't last. I just couldn't take it. It wasn't so much the city of L.A. It was the people. Mm -hmm. And Sacramento was such a family town, Mm -hmm. farm town, country town, slower pace. And that's kind of like what I was used to. So what I ended up doing is once my career started to get established, I uprooted. I went I came back to Sacramento and because I didn't like. I didn't like the Hollywood mm. shenanigans, the the phoniness, the people, the the lifestyle of what, what that part had to offer. So once I was able to establish home, I came back to Sacramento and made it home for me. Okay. Yeah. And I still I still commute to LA to this day quite often, but Sacramento was just it for me. It was just yeah. yeah. By this time then, wasn't Jay King with uh, Club Nouveau and and yes. uh, Timex? in Sacramento. Yeah. So didn't you yeah. then think, oh okay, my we've got the big number one record coming out of Sacramento and stuff like oh cool. yeah Jay King once got which once Jay King was one of those guys that was under the leadership, the mentorship. He idolized, we all idolized Robert Brookings. Robert Brookings was the guy. But uh, then Jay King, Jay King, you talk about a guy that believes in faith, what he did with his career. <laughs> I've interviewed him for an hour and a half, and yeah, he's he one of my. <laughs> he's very a straight shoot talker and stuff. He knows. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so when he hit with rumors, it was just it made you proud to be a part of the city because you're talking about an independent record that was the the biggest record in the world. And I, I was in Nigeria, and it was a massive record. And I and I and I tell people that sometimes you 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 think how big it is in America, and I'm thinking, but we're in Nigeria in the 80s without internet. So if a song yeah. can cross globally, it is it was massive. Yes, it was. It was very massive, man. So you no, know, Jay made everybody proud. And Jay, um, Jay took a liking to me at an early age, and he's okay. been my brother ever since, man. So so then but by the time, yeah, by the time all that was happening, and then um Foster McLaren when they split up and, and started the you get the Tonys coming out of Bay Area yeah. and then you had oh. in Vogue and stuff. Did mm-hmm. you then think, okay, because you said you is that when you relocated back to Sacramento or pretty much. You- pretty much. Yeah, I relocated during those times. Um during that time. I think I think actually I relocated my my life I was still commuting, 
But when I was playing with Shalimar towards the end of Shalimar, I had relocated because um, it just was the thing for me for me to do. And then after that, um, it didn't last long because I got called to play with Troop. You know, wow. so, so I toured with Troop after Sha after Shalimar. And what was cool about playing with Troop, that brought me and my best friend Flip back together. Uh, how so? <laughs> we were playing back with Troop together. We both auditioned for that gig at the same time. And we ended up getting, that was on their first album with Mamacita and My Heart and all that stuff. So, um, and that was a fun gig, man. Playing with those guys was just incredible. So, that yeah. Was um yeah I've, I've been i've spent time with john john and, and he's a he's a regular um Good. you know he supports the, the interviews i do and stuff and when true came out and i was i remember being in nigeria we were saying that they were dancers who could sing because it, it we were so mesmerized by how well they dance and oh. the fact that they could sing and there was no one else doing that. I mean, as much as we, you know, we lord New Edition, New Edition were very good with this whole Motown, the steps, but Troop were just, just blew our mind. And they were doing it live. And especially if you see the, the shows on our senior hall. So as a band supporting Troop, it must have been high energy just watching. The shows must have been unreal. I mean, what was it like? Yes. Oh, what, you know, one thing about when, when Troop came out, what made what separated them to me from New Edition is they dance real hard. They dance so hard, man. And what I mean by that, everything they did, every accent to the I mean, they were they were hard on the band. I mean, they would we would oh. have to hit everything was was just it's almost like Janet when she came out with Rhythm Nation. Mm -hmm. Janet was dancing real hard, you know. I mean, they were like hard dancers, you know, the, from the pop into the locking, and they the the energy was was New Edition became really New Edition as, as they got older at the time were dope, but they were polished. They were more finesse dancers. Mm -hmm. Troop. They were street dancers mm. and they danced real hard, man. And the energy was electrifying. And you're right. All of them could sing like incredibly. They all were great singers. John, John from John, John, Allen, Reggie, Steve, Rodney. I mean, those, those boys were just incredible, you know, at that time to be so young. And mm. they were really, really hungry. They were hungry to show the world wow. that, See, the first album was like, you know, Mama Cita was a big hit, but that first album was an introduction to say, who are these dudes? Mm. But then when they came with the second and then the follow-up albums, it was over with. They had mega hit records. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, they were really, and they had a funky edge because they were produced by Chucky Booker. And so... When you oh, had like, okay. well, even before Spread My Wings, Chucky on his first on the first album did, I'll never forget, man. When I joined the band, when I joined the band, um, they gave me a copy of the album and they said, Yo, Derek, you gotta listen to a song called My Heart. I'm like, cool. So I'm listening to this song called My Heart. And I'm like, all right, who's playing 
based on this record. <laughs> and they were like, man, that's Chucky Booker. You don't know him? I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, well, hold up. I said, no, I don't. But y'all expect me to play that? I said, y'all crazy. <laughs> it was so funky, man. It was just incredible. And that's when I was in, got introduced to who this young dude named Chucky Booker was. Because not only was he playing bass, but he's playing all the instruments on the record. And that blew me away. So, And that song was funky. So every inch of how funky that record was, mm -hmm. their dance moves was just as funky and just as hard-driven. Wow. That's the kind of energy they put in um, in what they did. Plus, I got to be honest with you, man. I'll say this to you. <clears throat> I've toured about 30 years of my life. About 30 years. That was the most fun I've ever had on a tour was with True. Wow. And it was the most fun I've ever had and the less money I've ever had. But it's the most fun I've ever had on any tour I've ever been on. I really enjoyed being with them dudes. We had just, I had the time of my life with them guys, we just had, I've never had that much fun on, on a tour with anybody. I mean, wow. I've joined my life, you know, tremendously and I'm, I got great relationships from it, but that tour was one of my first, it's the, I, we wouldn't get, we were getting paid peanuts, but I had the most fun touring with Troop. That's wow. the best. That was the most fun I've ever had on a tour. And we had one bus that probably <laughs> slept, that slept six that was holding about 17 to 18 people. <laughs> but, Flip was, but Flip was with you as well. That Flip was, was with me, my best friend. My brother was with me. And then, then all those guys just became my little brothers, man. And, um, you know, to this day, I love them to death, man. Love them to death. And I'm proud because they're making a real big comeback right now. Yeah. So, I'm sure John is going to watch this. But then it's strange that you say this because I know you've toured with Lionel Richie for more than seven years. You've yes. you've done the Ribbon Nation. You did Time, Bobby Brown, TLC, yes. Karen White. But the, was it because it was your first major ones or was it just because they were hungry or what was that? I you think all of that. I think all of that, man. I think because I was we was really hungry um, at that time. It wasn't about the money. As I got older in my career, you know, mm. when you're – goes then you want to make sure your money is good because you have a certain lifestyle so yes a lot of the when i got older the gigs was about making sure my money was right yeah this gig man it was my first one this is what y'all making cool <laughs> <laughs> this is what your per diem is even cooler this is where y'all gonna be staying y'all ain't staying a little key sweating them staying at y'all staying in the, the generic motels they ain't got no things just got a white <laughs> thing you know what I'm saying? But, <laughs> but man, I'm telling you, just, just we had so because we was opening act and we was kicking a lot of ass. Those boys were second to none, man. Who who was on, who was headliners then? If they were just opening, we, we were we were opening up. We were on tour like with Keith Sweat, Rob Bass, a uh, Kid and Play, uh, just a lot of during that time we were doing yeah, yeah. dates like that, and then we did our own shows. Okay. You no, know, then we were doing our own shows. Then we would do a lot of the festivals. Okay. You see what I'm saying? But man, it was just the most fun that I ever had just on any tour in my life. Just like with irregardless of the circumstances. I remember one time the bus broke down on us. 
and we were stranded somewhere. I can't, I can't remember, but <laughs> but we just had so much fun, man. They had a phenomenal band. Christopher Shoy was the musical director, and uh, my boy Romeo was playing guitar. Uh, a keyboard player named Greg. I can think of his last name. We had this was a phenomenal band, man. It was just my boy Flip on drums. Wow. Um, uh, it was just a great, great time, man. It was just one. And we, when me and Steve hook up, oh my gosh, man, the stories. <laughs> I ain't even gonna go there because Steve, <laughs> Steve wouldn't want to be my roommate from time to time. Wow. You know? And so Steve used to be my roommate. When I tell you a nut from hell. Oh my gosh, he was such, he was something else, man. Big Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> oh, big Michael Jackson fan. Big Mike, but that was the most fun, man, that I've ever had on any tour that I've ever been with. With it was with True, no but doubt. Then what was the difference with, uh, or how did you get on the Rhythm Nation? Rhythm Nation to great question. Rhythm Nation tour was was audition, and when I say Janet, Janet had a kettle call. Um, it was a cattle call with just musicians from all over the world. And I want to make sure that the story is straight. It was a, it was an audition that w went on for several days and several, you know, several days and, you know, people from all over the world, including London and, wow. you know, and in Japan and people from all over. And, um, and I want the record to be straight that I earned that gig. Nobody gave me that gig. Chucky didn't plug me into that gig. I earned it. I deserved it. Deserved the gig. Janet Jackson handpicked me for the gig. There's a lot of kind of even to this day, man. It's a lot of nonsense, BS stories by certain individuals that are out there that's not just speaking the truth. And uh, you know, um, that was uh, I, I'll never forget when Chucky called me. Um, everybody kind of assumed that when they found out Chucky was going to be the musical director, because Chucky and I are best friends, they automatically thought that Chucky was just going to plug me right in, you know. But when Chuck, but that wasn't the case, because Janet was going to handpick all of her musicians. She was right there. And when Chucky called me for the audition, he says, he said, Derek, man, he says, you know, about the Janet Jackson situation, you know, I got the call to be the MD. I said, yeah, man, the word is all out. <laughs> People are calling me, assuming I'm already on the gig. But, <laughs> hey, he says, D, he says, listen, man, he says, um, you're going to have to earn this job, man. Janet is picking her whole band. And um, I looked Chucky in the face. I said, hey, if I don't earn it, I don't want it. I want I want to earn it. I don't want, I don't, if I can't earn it, I don't want it. I don't deserve it. He said, the best thing I can do, D, is get you an audition. It's all I need. Just give me an audition. Let me know where, where I got to be and how. And I'm just, I was just grateful for that. I said, thank you for the opportunity, you know. And um, Janet Jackson um, um, watched every audition, watched wow. every. She sit through all the players for several days. Did she have Jamie Lewis with her, or was she by herself? Jamie Lewis came afterwards, okay. but on auditions, you know. She was pretty much there with her management, and and then Chucky, you know, went through all the people, and and um, you know, she Janet had had already picked a guitar player. She had one person like the guitar player. She knew who she wanted, a guy by the name of Basil Fong, and uh, but as far as the rest of the band, you know, 
and and you know Chucky had um had put a a band together that he you know with guys from T's you know his guys you know mm-hmm. to be a collect to audition as a group and they did that so he had the Oregon Brothers Rex the whole band Cornelius Mims everybody audition for Janet now I'm sure those guys was kicking a bunch of ass great players all of them and I tell everybody I said Janet had some of the greatest musicians all over from the, across the world auditioning some of my friends that were been that been in LA longer than me that were probably better musicians than me the bass players than I was but I just tell everybody you know you know it's, it's God just chose me for that gig mm. you know um, um I think that you know I think I had something different to offer I'll never forget that you know during that time in that audition you know, everybody's kind of ear hustling everybody, you know, you're kind of listening and because mm. you can hear. And all the bass players, when it came down to their solo, everybody was doing Larry Graham, Lewis Johnson, Jocko, Victor Wu. Oh, Jocko. <laughs> we're going all in. You know, all of them were going for blood that way. And I said, God, you have to give me something different to play. You know, that was not not my style of playing anyway. Mm. I just remember praying and I asked God, I said, God, please, for my solo, give me something different. I have, I, it can't be that. Mm. Everybody's doing the same thing. Playing as I'm listening to you and talking to you, playing as day right now, God said to me, Derek, when your solo comes, play a quartet drive. Play a quartet drive. And that's all I kept hearing. And I was like, a quartet drive. Wait a minute. You mean he says, yes, just play a quartet drive on your solo and don't move. Stay right there. I said, wait a minute. You mean something that I've been doing since the third grade? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Your element. Some, something that I could play in my sleep. Something that I don't have to think about. Play a quartet drive on your solo and don't move. And I promise you, when it came to my solo, I went to this little picking thing, a little quartet drive, like a Richard Wallace of the Mighty Clouds of Joy, just <laughs> quartet drive, and I didn't move. And Janet was sitting in the balcony, pitch black, dark, but you can see her silhouette. Mm-hmm. She stood up, threw both hands up like this. Now, I don't know what the reaction was with other bass players, but she stood up and was like this while I was playing a quartet drive. Mm-hmm. And of, of course, Chucky was egging it on. <laughs> you know, Chucky was egging it on, right? But I'm telling you, when I walked out that room, all those bass players were like, dude, who are you? What were you playing? What what style was that you were playing? What were you doing? I was like, bro, I don't know. It's just something I've been doing all my life. It was but I felt good about my audition. And I'm telling you, man, that's what got me that job. And certain people out there don't want to give me the credit of earning the job, but that job was well earned. I'll tell anybody any day of the week until they face. So. Was there any pressure? Um, I I can't imagine, you know, with knowing the relationship you had with Chucky that 
if you didn't get it, does that, or does it cause us? Sometimes people don't even go for it. Like, you know, I don't want it to be awkward. If I didn't get it, then I'm going to think that you couldn't put a word in for me or or I got it and then, and it's not your... So, so you, no, see, I, I didn't have that. Other other Some of his other friends had that, see. I would have thought so. Because it just means, yeah, I'll just... If, if I went in, you're my guy, and if I didn't get it, I might think, man, you could have put a word in for me, even if I messed up. Now, you, now you're stepping in the prop... Now you're stepping in... The BS was kind of still lingering after 33 years. Mm. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah. That exactly what you're saying is mm. still is happening to this day, my man. Nonsense. Mm. This is why Chucky's been in my life. Chucky don't owe me anything. He's I the stuff he's done for me already, I could never repay. Never. He's my friend first. Whether we do music together ever again or not, that's my brother. Mm. expect anything nor does he expect anything from me he's done i've seen chucky so seeds and so many musicians player and musicians lives man and watched them just skyrocket just a great dude who don't know the meaning of the word no or i i don't think i can help you i don't it's always man let me i'm gonna try to help you i'm gonna do my best or yes knowing it's really not yes knowing it's yes but chucky you know you that's impossible for you to do I got to do my best to help him. D. That's the kind of the that's that's kind of hard he has. Mm. So yes, another great question because that's the kind of backlash that he's experiencing in two thousand twenty three. Are you kidding me? Since yes, since eighty eight eighty nine. Wow. Yes. And when I tell you that man put that whole rhythm nation tour together by himself. That's another discrepancy. It's another thing. Chucky put that whole show together by himself. Built this show the way Janet wanted it. Janet, Chucky took the order off the menu, ordered this. Chucky was back there cooking it up and did it and prepared it and did it. And we all came in and supported it. And we were only, we had one goal and our goal was to just to show up every night and just slam every night. But he was the one that's credited for doing that work. I, he, you know what? what is always interesting because he was at the time a young guy f to be a music director. And of course he, he, he had just come off with, you know, a global hit with games and, 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 and his, and his, and his big solo album, uh, his, his, his album and then producing for other people. That was a risk, putting his career on hold to do um, to go on this massive tour with with Janet because you don't the fans would don't you know they they're not going to see oh that's Chucky doing Beanie MD they're just going to see Janet and not really pay attention to anything else behind the scenes I mean the industry people would know what he's doing so for somebody that young to take that risk um, and put everything on hold like that. You know, I think I don't know if people give him that sort of credit for doing it. I interviewed um, John Marie uh, Hovert, who was Teddy Riley's engineer and recorder, and he said that Michael wanted Teddy to be his MDF for the Dangerous Tour, but he had to talk him out of it because they had the Bobby album, they had Rex and Effect, they had all these albums, and you know he couldn't. He would have made it. Probably had a major tour, but it's a risk, you know, that Chucky sacrificed to to do that. 
Well, the thing about it is, okay, so you got to remember now, you got to remember the beautiful thing about that whole thing was that Chucky opened up for Janet. On oh, so he wasn't, okay. So, so what happened was, this was off of this first album with Turned Away. Mm. Soul Trilogy, That's My Honey, the first album. Um, it, it worked worked well for him because he got he got to go out and do a thirty five minute set open. We got to be his band. We got to play for him and then uh, go back and put our Rhythm Nation clothes on. Okay, and okay. play with Jan. Oh, that okay, that so, makes okay. That's that's oh, that's the way. So that was like you man, you couldn't have made a better story. I mean, but the so what happened was when we were doing the second another leg of the tour to Europe. <laughs> is when he was getting pressure to get his album done with games. Uh, the games, album. okay. So, so he had the commitment. So he had to jump off the tour to go finish his games album. So um, he he jumped off the tour, and we finished up the uh, the Europe and all that stuff. And Chucky stayed back, recorded his record. We got ready for games. Games came out. Was a humongous hit. We were rehearsing, trying to put the show together. You know, then things kind of shifted, went in another direction. And we just st started going on the road with other people. That's when Chucky says, no, the music is starting to change. I, you know, I, I, I'm not willing to to um, sell my soul out and my create the stuff that I believe in as a creator for what the industry says do or sell my lyric content out, uh, my music content. I I, I, I don't want to do that. And trust me, Chucky is the greatest producer. You could take Chucky Booker or Prince, which take your pick. You can't go wrong. Prince is gone. Chucky is the baddest man in the world right now. He's the baddest dude next to Prince to me. Mm -hmm. And um, But he refused to sell himself out to with the industry to, to the shift. So then that's when he started just really saying, okay, I got another, I got a cool ass day job over here. I'm gonna be musical director for everybody in the world. And that's when he started really doing that. But what about yourself then? How, because so that if that's what's Chucky's conviction, what about yourself? Um, yeah. How, what were you, because do you just say, well, I'm, I play whatever that I have to play, or did you, does, where did your values, did it affect your values? Oh, of course. Oh, oh, yeah, man. My my thing was, I've always been a guy with a five and ten year goal. So after Janet Jackson, after Rhythm Nation, I'm thinking, who who am I really going to play with next? I mean, I'm playing with Janet. She's the biggest in the world, you know. I knew I couldn't play with Michael. Michael had his band pretty much, I, you know. So that's when I got into songwriting and producing. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So is that way? So, I mean, for those of us who never got to see the Ribbon Nation tour. How yes. big was was because I, I, I was in Nigeria when I came out and the whole aesthetics and the whole it just felt like in a massive movement. And I think unfortunately that Ribbon Nation album affected Michael's career afterwards because he tried to copy it and, and it, it with it subsequent albums. But being on that tour, because it was a massive album, how was it just seeing the fans uh, for yourself watching, because you're playing, watching Janet and watching the fans. What was it like? Every day, man, I wake up every day since then. I always thank God for blessing me with the Rhythm Nation tour every day of my life. In my prayers every day. The biggest thing that I've ever been a part of 
Um, and I'm so glad because to this day, it's still a big part of history. Yeah, it, it was absolutely phenomenal. I watched a lot of people get saved on that tour. That's, wow. that, tour was, that tour was not only entertaining, man, but it was very spiritual. Mm. If you go back and listen to the message that Janet was in and those lyrics of, you know, of those songs, you know, mm. like State of the World and Knowledge and all these songs and lyrically what those songs were saying. Man, we literally watch people save themselves from committing suicide, from quitting school, from giving up, from giving up hope. Oh, it was amazing, man. We watched people return back to school. We watched people be successful, man. Janet had a thing to where she she just had a special place in her heart for the paraplegic people to come and have a zone in place. We watched people who didn't have, who had half bodies come and enjoy that show. People with no legs, people with no arms, just people just got just loved on, on that tour. There's a story, can't remember, but there was one story where, and it's on the internet somewhere, but there's a story where it was these two, is the two, one or two black girls, and one, it was it was a suicidal story. But they got a hold of the rhythm nation and they ended up meeting Janet. And she it basically it was a life changing moment. And we witnessed it real time. So that music, that album is probably my favorite album ever. Um, with Jimmy and Terry and Jelly Bean and those guys did. And Janet, it was just phenomenal. Um, so to be a part of that, mm-hmm. I think that big tour sold out in less than 40 minutes when it went up. It went up for the tour was announced, 40 minutes was sold out. I'm talking about seven nights at the forum. You know, I'm talking about, you know, just, just massive shows everywhere. Mm. So and here it is. I'm thinking, God, that wow, you allow me to be the part of the biggest debut tour in history for a female. Mm. So it was that massive. It was that massive. Wow. Yeah. You know, I was when I was speaking to El, um, El Debarjan, and I said that that music that um, is, if you think of David, who was playing for Saul, and as he played, Saul was being delivered. I said, the problem is that our musicians and singers don't understand the gift that they have. That. David understood that he sings and plays and people, he was somebody who was getting healed. That if you understood the gift as you're playing and having that um, and 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 just receiving and giving it out, the audience are supposed to have that impact and that transformation because that is that's that's how it, it spreads. Um, but I think we we you know, and it's not about the about the lyrics, but it's it's the spirit behind behind that. And I just my prayer is always that the, the musicians and singers who have the gifting, just let go and just open up and just, just let the spirit just flow. And you describe that in Ribbon Nation, and that should just almost be the beginning of what should be happening all over the place. Yes, yes. And that's, I can't, man, I can't tell you, that's exactly what that tour was. Um, it was a very spiritual healing um, message. The tour was just phenomenal, man. It was, um, you know, <laughs> can't explain it. I'm just so thankful every day for just being a part of it. 
So then you've done, you've gone on this major, massive tour. How then did the the inspiration to then say, well, let me start working in the studio? How yeah. did that just how it happened? That, yeah. It happened thereafter. So after I came off the road, came off that tour, you know, um, I didn't take my money and go buy, you know, fancy car. I bought my mother a brand new car that she never had a brand new car. And <laughs> we still lived in my mother's duplex. And and, um, and I took my money invested into like going into the studio and studio time because I said, you know, you know, God, what, what next? You know, wow. what next? And, and um, so I just went in, man, start writing songs. And I promise you, man, I'm in the studio for maybe about a six-week period, and I'm writing some music. And I come across this one idea. I have a song that I'm working on called I Need a Girl, just a demo. And um, I'm just in the studio by myself and the engineers. I'm writing this song. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, man. This would be the great, the great song for Bobby Brown, you know. Because, you know, when you're a songwriter, you think, <laughs> man, Whitney Houston can do this. <laughs> Lionel Richie can do this. You know, Charlie Wilson can do this. You know, you just got your, 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 your wish list, right? Yeah. Man, if Bobby hear this, man, I know, man, he is a kid. <laughs> that was me, right? So I had this song. Now, my thing was I had met Bobby because I met, the first time I met Bobby, I was playing with Karen White. And we opened uh... up for him. Open up for the Don't Be Cruel to Yeah, because yeah, Karen, yeah, I've seen the clips of that. Yeah, that was massive. Yeah, so, after, so after Troop, I started playing with Karen White. And I played with Karen White, man, for like almost two and a half years. We just, Karen White was killing the world at that time. So, okay, um, before, before you go into the Bobby, just, just talk about yeah. Karen because yes. I, I think a lot of people see Beyonce and not realize that Karen was doing, you know, with the high heels and, and the energy and stuff. <laughs> hey, Karen, let me tell you something, man. Karen was a was Tina Turner Jr. back then. <laughs> I'm serious, man. She was Tina Turner Jr. Now let me change that. She was Ike and Tina Turner Jr. <laughs> all wrapped in one. That girl, man, was just on fire, and she still is. But but yeah. at that time, her energy level was on ten through the roof, man. Wow. And uh, and she had a you know the band with Eddie M, John Paris, Bobby G. Michael Norfleet, Roman Johnson. She had an incredible band that was just, just, it was, man, it's another great band that one, another great band I played with. And just Karen as an artist was just phenomenal. So I, I worked with Karen on her first album with, you know, um, Secret Rendezvous and, and the Superwoman. Yeah, 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 The Way You Love Me and all that. And then um, the Secret Rendezvous video I happened to be in. And, oh. And I was just playing bass with her at that time. And the band was just so smoking. So we did the Don't Be Cruel tour. We opened up. That was the tour with Karen White, Levert, and Bobby Brown. Mm. That was Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel that he was touring off of Don't Be Cruel. And uh, we opened up, man. And, you know, we was we was putting, we, we, were, we were opening up for real. <laughs> Karen was putting a hole in the stage. We didn't have much to work with, but every night she would leave a deep hole in that wow. stage. Where if the next artist stepped in it, they was gonna fall in. <laughs> so, so it was so much fun, um, you know. And that's why I met Bobby. I met Bobby, but I never, I didn't get. It was like passing Bob. You know, we we on tour together for months, right? Yeah. Okay. Um. 
So, but but after after Rhythm Nation, then after Karen, that's when I got Janice too. That's oh. right. Yeah, and uh, and Karen wished me well. She gave me her blessings, and and uh, and we still. That's like my sister to this day. Yeah. We still together. And, I mean, you did stuff for for her um her her um Gail Storm. Gail and Storm, yeah, Gail and Gail Storm stuff, Storm. yeah, yeah. And this time, as a producer, working with her as a producer, mm. it's just been incredible. I've, I've we've been doing that for the past, you know. 15 years, dang there. We've been working together for a long time. But um start working with start working with uh you know Janet afterwards. And then I'm in the studio after the Rhythm Nation tour. I'm in the studio writing a song that I got for Bobby Brown. I'm trying to figure out how to get it to Bobby Brown. I don't know how I'm gonna get it to Bobby Brown, but I know this song needs to be with Bobby Brown. I promise you, man. And it, God is my witness. The very next day I show up at the studio, I get a phone call out of the blue at the studio from Tommy Brown. He oh, Bobby's calls, brother? Bobby, Bobby's brother calls me while I'm in the studio dreaming about <laughs> how I'm going to get the song to Bobby Brown. So now I get this call from Tommy. Tommy says, hey, D, what's, what's up, man? I say, hey, man, who is this? Tommy Brown. So Bobby, Bobby, Bobby's brother, Tommy. So we're talking, right? So he, say, he, says, he says, man, listen, Bobby's going to Japan in about a month and a half. He's been looking for you. He wants what? to know. He wants to know if you would play bass for him in Japan. Man, I looked at that phone. I was like, "Brother, absolutely. <laughs> Just tell me when, where." <laughs> and he's like, "He's like, man, Bobby will take care of you, D. Make sure you get whatever the money is." But see what they didn't know. I would have did that gig for free. I would have <laughs> hopped on a ten speed with a pair of thongs on on the reverse side to get myself to Atlanta just to do that gig. I would have done. I would have been on that ten speed. <laughs> but I was like thinking, God, I was like, you've got to be kidding me, really? Wow. So now, in a month and a half, I'm going to be in Atlanta, going to meet Bobby Brown as as a bass player because that's all people really know me as as a bass mm. player. Fine. So I get to Atlanta. What year was this? So, so we could put it into the this album. This probably this must have been ninety one. Okay, so he's done the "Don't Be Cruel" and all that stuff. This is pre- Bobby, yeah, he's working Bobby on the Bobby album. album. He's doing Bobby on the Bobby album. Yeah, he's working on the Bobby album. I I didn't know he's working on the Bobby album. So yeah, about nine ninety one. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah. get down there. We're rehearsing. We're rehearsing for three weeks in Atlanta, and. I had this tape in my hand, in my <laughs> pocket, and you know, I had to just burning a hole in my pocket. I'm looking for the right time to play the song, right? I'm going to tell him about my song, right? You know, I'm not worried about the bass. He loved me as a bass player. He was he he was a fan of my bass stuff because mm. he was coming out on the Janet Jackson tour. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. He was hanging out on the Janet. He, uh. he welcome, but he was coming <laughs> hanging out whenever he got ready. So I was seeing one Janet Jackson tour all the time, right? But I got this tape in my pocket, man, and I'm just like, every day I wake up, right? You know, it's like you know when you're when you were in elementary school, that girl you liked, and you said, you know, today I'm gonna talk to her. Yeah, about. yeah. <laughs> and the next day go by, then the next, then before you know it, it's the end of the week, right? Then you still don't talk to her. Then before you know it, it's the last day of school year. Then it's, the school year is over. You said next year I'm gonna talk to her. I'm gonna be. <laughs> It was like that with this music, man. I was that intimidated to play this, to let him know. Right? So we have a break in the in the break room. We have a break and me and Bobby's talking. So he says, yeah, D, man, 
man, I love me. He was killing on that Rhythm Nation tour, man. And I said, yeah, Bob, you know, we just talking, small talking. I said, man, how you been, man? He said, man, I've been all right. You know, every day after we rehearsed, I go to the studio working on the album. I said, oh, really? I said, okay. I said, so how's it coming? He said, oh, it's coming cool, you know. Teddy Riley's going to be here soon and got to get with Face and got to do this. I said, yeah, you're almost done. He said, no, nah, we're not done yet. He says, why? Do you have something? And I said, um, just so happened I do. <laughs> you know, and I start rubbing on my pocket. <laughs> then he says, he says, well, when can I hear it? I said, we can hear it right now. So mind you, we're on a break. It's probably like three or four in the mid-afternoon. We go into his car. He's driving his Mercedes Benz. He's probably five, six, yes. <laughs> so this was a, this was the station wagon at that okay. time. We had about thirty of them at that time. <laughs> this was the station wagon one. And if the Benz cost a hundred thousand, his sound system cost about three hundred thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so so he puts my tape in right. So now I'm on the passenger side. And he's on the driver's side. He puts my tape in. And it gets into the song about 15, 20 seconds in. He stops the tape, rolls down the windows. He's screaming, Ben, I need the security. I need the dancers. I need everybody to get the fuck over here by this car right now. You guys are going to hear my next, my first single of my album. And I'm like, what's the single? You know, I didn't know anything. And so he's like, D, man, run that back. Let's listen to this. And he said, somebody bring me a joint. So, <laughs> so we're in the car. Now he has everybody listening to my song. And I'm like, I don't know if they're going to like my song. They're going to clown my song. They're going to make fun of me or nothing. But everybody was listening to it and grooving and just getting into it. I was like, oh, snap, they like it, right? And so Bobby says, he says, listen, when we come back from Japan, I'm going to fly you back here to Atlanta with me, and we're going to go cut this record, plus we're going to cut another song. So I'm like, dude, are you serious? He says, yeah, so I'm going to have you out here for like two weeks after we do Japan. So I'm going, I'm like, dude, really? I, I'm, he's going to record my song, for real. He's going to record this song. So now I'm talking to his, he's got his attorneys calling me in Japan, saying, hey, yeah, Mr. Brown, you know, wants oh, to... Yeah. Mr. Brown is going to, you guys are going to do um, um, two songs. He got the studio. You're going to be working here. They're talking all this stuff that I have no clue with the Sam's. It's like, okay, yeah. And then she says, yeah. And then, yeah. So Mr. Brown's going to pay you this for this track. He's going to pay you $15,000 for this track. And he, then he wants to do another track and he's going to pay you another $15,000. So, yeah, I said, I said, you going to pay me what? And they were like, well, Mr. Allen, if that's a problem, you have to take that up with, my, with Mr. Brown. I said, no. I said, no, no, no. See, yeah, he's going to pay you $15,000 for this one and another fifty. That's $30,000 for the total of two tracks. Is that right? Dude, my jaw hit the ground. I said, wait a minute. You can make that kind of money producing a record? I said, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> I'm in the wrong business. I'm in the wrong business. So now, my I'm never, dude. I've never produced nothing. I never. I don't know anything about producing. Mm -hmm. I just know what I did in my little studio. Now I'm in this major in his studio called Boss Town. We're in the studio mm -hmm. working. 
Songs called I Need a Girl, right? So we're working on I Need a Girl, working on it, we're working on got almost got it finished. And I have to share a story with you, man, because it's crazy. So then he says, hey, man, I got to go to the airport. I'll be right back. I said, cool. He says, by the way, man, when I come back, you you how about my girl sing on the song? You want, want to get her to sing on the song? I said, I don't know. Who's your girl? He said, do you know my girl? I said, no, dude, I don't know your girl. Who's your girl? Come on, D. I said, do I know who's your girl? He said, man, Whitney. I said, Whitney who? <laughs> he, said, he said, you know Whitney Houston, my girl? I said, get the hell out of here, man. You ain't messing with no Whitney Houston. Get out of here, right? So then he says, do you want her to sing on the song or not? I said, Bob, stop playing. He said, man, F it, I'll be back. He goes to the airport. He comes back one hour later. What? Him and Whitney walks through the door. And when I tell you, they was booed up. They was booed up to the T. They was booed up. And I'm back there in the booth looking like. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I can't believe it, dude. I'm like going crazy. Whitney Houston is coming in and Bobby's saying, so yeah, babe, you know, this is my boy DOA. I was just telling you, he's producing the record. So he got you. I'm going to go and get some food. And he gonna, he got you just, you know, he going to tell you what he need. He, he going to tell you what he need. And just going, you know, give him what he wants. Like, okay. Whitney Houston goes in the vocal booth. And I'm in the control room. And the engineer, it's me by myself, control room, the engineer. And on the other side is Whitney Houston. Now, believe me, bro, when I tell you I ain't never produced nobody. <laughs> I ain't never produced nobody but my own little self in my studio <laughs> in Sacramento dreaming that this song could be on Bobby Bobby Brown, right? Wow. Now, I could kind of do the Bobby Brown thing now, but now Whitney Houston. Bro, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to do. So Whitney Houston is getting the thing together, getting the mic together, taking the scarf off. And I'm looking at the engineer. I'm saying, dude, what the hell do I do? What are we doing? What are we doing, bro? Tell me. What, what do I say? He says, dude, you got a producer. I said, I don't know how to produce nobody. I've never done this. <laughs> oh, God. Man, I promise, man, I can't make this up, man. This is this is part of my testimony because because it's, it goes so it goes further. So she's like, okay, D, tell me what we're doing. And this is your first time meeting her, right? Just, just... First time meeting her. First time being in the, the studio with an SSL board. Don't know what knives do. <laughs> Bobby gone. I'm with the engineer who's a big engineer. He ain't helping me. And <laughs> now I got Whitney Houston on the other side. Wow. And so I said, she said, so, okay, what are we doing? I said, uh... <laughs> Uh, let me see. Uh, <laughs> what do I say, dude? I said, um, you're just gonna sing, right? Sing? Just sing, right? She's like, she said, just play the just play the damn record. Just play the record. Just play. <laughs> I said, thank you, God. Thank you. <laughs> Played the record, man. She started singing on the song, and I'm telling you, man. 
I was blown away. Now here I am, never producing. I got Bobby Brown. I'm producing Whitney Houston on my song. I never did that before. Never produced nobody. Now I'm working with the greatest of all time on a record called I Need You, I Need a Girl. Now the ironic thing is this. The second song that me and Bobby wrote together was a song called College Girl. Yes, and Bobby Allen's my favorite album. So the I Bobby. know all the tracks, so don't worry about that. Yeah, so. The College Girl. Yeah, I know the College, yeah. So now I got two Bobby Brown songs. Let's go, like, when it's all said and done. We cut College Girl. Turns out the way, way it is on the record. I got two songs on this Bobby Brown the, on one of the most anticipated records because mm. he's coming off Don't Be Cruel. So everybody's waiting on the Bobby album, yeah, right? So I'm home now. So my dude from L.A. calls me. He says, hey, man, you know, you're on the marquee and billboard. Everybody's to see your names right there in, with Teddy and Babyface and all the producers. <laughs> you may not be a top marquee, but your name. I said, dude, really? He said, dude, how, what do you think about getting a publishing deal? I said, what's a publishing deal? <laughs> Mind you, this is me breaking in as a songwriter. Don't know anything produced. Only thing I know is that what I was made as a producer's fee and I loved it and I knew that that's the that's the world I wanted to be in. So my dude is explaining the publishing deal. He says, man, come on down to LA next week. I'm going to set some publishing meetings up for you. So I go to LA with my boy, Bruce Sterling. He has maybe four publishing companies. He says, D, but, but, but make sure you bring about six of your best songs and bring your two songs that you did on Bobby Brown. I Need a Girl and College Girl. Bring both of those songs because they see equity in you just simply because you got these two songs on this album that they're projecting to be bigger than Don't Be Cruel. So they want to be a part of it. I said, cool. Went to a couple of companies. They were lukewarm toward me. They liked the Bobby songs. They didn't like the other songs. They liked the Bobby songs, but they were lukewarm. The last meeting we had was a company called ATV. Oh, not not that's Michaels. When it was solely Michaels, I didn't know this at the time. Okay, we're at ATV with my boy James Leach, who's like my dear brother right now. I'm with James now over at CSAC. But James took a meeting with me, heard my music, heard my demos, plus heard the two Bobby Brown songs. He wasn't just only in the two Bobby Brown songs. He loved my demos. He says, man, your music. Bobby Brown songs are dope, but you got some, he says, can you guys come back tomorrow? I want you to meet with my boss, a guy named Dale Kawashima. It's cool. So we go back the next day. When we went back, Dale comes in the room. He says, there's no need to play the music. My office is right here. I heard it just y'all bumping it through the, through the walls. I like you, man. You're something. I mean, you, you have something, you know, I mean, Dude, you're amazing. So I'm like, okay, I don't know what I don't know where I'm at. I'm just <laughs> my, my boy's doing all the talking. I'm just hanging out. And I'm just like, okay, cool. Then he says, listen, we want the owner of the company to hear your music. And we want to hit the, the two Bobby Brown. Now, how much publishing you have? I said, Well, I own 50%. Bobby Brown owns 50. Cool. We love them. And then we love your other way. So we want. You know, we want the owner of the company to hear your music. And if he wants likes your music, 
we, we could probably get you signed over here if you were interested. I said, cool. So we're walking out the business, the building. Now I'm a little frustrated. <laughs> I don't know what the hell going on. So I'm talking to my man. I said, dude, what, what are we doing? What is this publishing? What are we doing, man? Where, where, where are we at, man? Who, who's going to listen to the music? Now I thought we was going to have some business. <laughs> so he says, D, you don't know where you at, huh? I said, no, where are we at? He said, man, this is ATV. I said, I know that part. But what, what is this, bruh? He said, D, they're getting ready to send your music to Michael Jackson. And if Michael Jackson likes your music, he's going to sign you, sign you to a publishing deal. I said, man, you, you bullshitting me. <laughs> I, I can't, man, this is just, just incredible. It was it was Michael Jackson's company when he owned it, when he bought the Beatles catalog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sly Stone, James Brown, when he owned, before Sony. Before he get, yeah, so it's a half, so yeah. He had some great writers over there, Keith Crouch. Zach Troy, Zach, I mean, uh, Christopher Troy, Zach Harmon. He had some great writers, Cornelius Mims, great writers over there. A couple of days later, James Leach called my boy. My boy says, hey, man, James was, Leach wants to, meet, wants to meet us at Roscoe's. I said, cool, I'm still in town. Let's go to Roscoe's. He, me and my boy, we at Roscoe's. We waiting for James Leach to come. James Leach walks up to us, puts his hands out. He says, hey, man, we're going to have a great lunch today. On Michael, welcome to ATV. I said, "What? Why Michael wants to sign you, bro? Congratulations! That was my first publishing deal. <laughs> that signed me to a publishing deal. I was signed with him for two years. So he actually knew. So did Did you ever get to meet him? I I met him on on the Rhythm Nation, but <sighs> he didn't know he there was. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a bass player. Hey, this is my brother Michael. Hey, Michael, this is my bass player DOA. This is my guitar player Dave. Da, 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 da. Okay, okay, okay. Nothing to stick. Nothing to really stick. I mean, he saw a great band. You know, I brought it up to him afterwards, and he sort of he remembered. But that's what that's how that happened. Then I was on my then my life started to really shift, man, from trying to be DOA this bass player to trying to be more or less DOA. More or less to be a more or less sorry about that. DOA this producer. That's when everything started to change. I, 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 some of, I would say that. Wow, didn't you? Didn't you reach out to Chucky and say, Chucky, you you know, because he was a producer, troop, and all these other people, and think about what's it like, and probably just to get some help and knowledge. No, and I know those so Don't get me wrong. So, what remind you? I still didn't know. Even when I had my publishing deal, man, I was green. I learned so much from Chucky okay. afterwards because now I'm really getting into producing. When Chucky was working on his on his Nice and Wild album and Games and Soul Trilogy and everything he was doing, man, I was soaking him up like a sponge, getting stuff. He was giving me so much game. You know, I learned so much from him as well as, you know, just crafting my own self, really understanding and wanted to know really what it was all about. So... Absolutely, I learned so much from um, Chucky sonically about sound and how to get to sound and how to make sound really big and how to, how to make go from making your records sound like demos to making them sound like real records. Uh, what about the business part? Because most of the artists that I interviewed 
they 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 get blindsided about the business and and stuff. Did you get full knowledge about hey, this is you know, you know, yeah. One thing about that was I had my brother. My brother was like my business manager. He was my partner, and he's he's he self taught. One of the smartest men's I do as I know in the business next to Jay King. So he, I was always protected when it came down to that. Okay. Always protected. Yeah. He knew contracts. He knew deals. Okay. Publishing. He knew points. He knew, he knew everything. He knew royalties, everything. So, um, um, he protected me and negotiated all my contracts. My brother did. Then I, I need to go. Where did it go to? Where did that end up? Because I only know College Girl making the album. So, so College. Okay. So what happened was. When the, when the album, when the songs got picked, the song that I thought that song that was in the studio dreaming about, yeah, that didn't make the album. The one Whitney Houston sung backgrounds on. What the, how, 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 hey man, I'm <laughs> learning. It was MCA. They had a big pile of songs. College Girl made it. And when they were telling me, I was first a little afraid because when I took that back to the guys <laughs> over at TV, I thought they were, you know, hold that against me. They were like, no, you got one song. Congratulations, man! We're gonna party for you. <laughs> no, they they were they were happy, but just because just to have one song on that project was basically the start of it. And so, um, um, so College Girl made the album, man. And even though it wasn't it wasn't a single, man, it's a fan favorite, you know, off the album. It's just it's um, it was really something that I'm really proud of to this day. It was my Who played the saxophone. That's Danny, Danny Lamel. Okay, um, go Danny, go. I just thought, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so so that's the Danny Lamel from uh Stone City Band, you know, uh, okay. Rick James. Yeah, that so Danny was his musical director at the time. Ah, okay, so, okay. Yeah, so we use Danny Lamel. Now, it must have been either Clive not wanting Whitney, because I I and and they only probably say we'll only let her appear on one song because it didn't make sense that even something in common didn't get released until later on. That should have been the second single. Hey, right. So did they explain to you why they didn't let that track go? Or did you think it was um, um, well, BM Jive uh, Arista at the time thinking, no, we don't want to over expose Whitney on a, on a Barbie. I, album. I don't think it was that. I think if it was anything, if I would have to think and and I, it, it, and I don't mind it, but I think because I wrote I Need a Girl 100% by myself, you know, Bobby said, okay, you know, you got a couple of new producers because this, this other producer, um, Dennis Austin, got one song as well. So Bobby probably chose, chose one of mine and chose one of Dennis. Bobby wanted some new flavor. So he probably was limited to new producers. So he chose College Girl because he and I wrote College Girl together. Okay. So. So there was bigger investment in that with him, but I, I don't know. I, I I mean that's the only thing I can think of, or maybe they just liked. Uh, but which is a better album. song for you when you if because we've not heard of that. Yeah, I, I you know I thought I Need a Girl was a great song. I mean, but but College Girl made the record, and I think that I think that was the right choice. But where is I Need a Girl? It, it's in the archives, sitting on a dat somewhere. I gotta find it. I mean, I got it, but now I gotta find a dat player so I can so I can. Uh, uh, download it to a, my hard drive and be able to listen to it, man. But I got it. I need a girl, man. With Whitney singing the background. Whitney singing the backgrounds. Yes. So With technically, Whitney. then what what does it belong to MCA or does it belong? It belongs, to- well, it belongs to MCA because I got paid for 
they own the masters. So I got paid for two records, but I still have something to cherish and to hold on to. You know, they can't stop me from playing the song and saying, Hey, I did this record and the Whitney Houston's on it. I don't own the, the masters though. But I, I am surprised that a Whitney, especially with all what's happening now, that something like that doesn't get Surface. doesn't get released or, or put on a yeah. greatest hits or it something. Was really, it was really really cool, man. It was, and then you know Whitney, Whitney, Whitney and I we 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 become we became really really good friends. After that, I'll never forget when we were rehearsing for the tour. Whitney was they were pregnant with the baby, and Whitney was coming to, you know. Um, um, the rehearsals and I had a relationship with her so uh, her and I we would we would kick and she would work with the singers if, and she would ask me about things about the band musically and what we should do and so man I'm just thankful man I'm just thankful for my life man it's that I had a chance to even just you know be a part of that whole thing and then with Michael Jackson and you know I still have a contract with man with Michael Jackson's signature on that he's you know <laughs> Yeah, and he owned ATV Music. So yeah, I, well, you know, yeah, it's a topic that I get really sensitive about, just because of um, yeah. I mean, so it's you so know, the share this with you. Wait, so on the movie Poetic Justice, there's a song called "Waiting for You" that that's on Tony, 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 and um, I did that song. It was actually on the film and everything on Poetic Justice called "Waiting for You," and is on that soundtrack. And um, at the time, Michael Jackson had his own power of attorney. And I'll never forget, man, uh, um, they were trying to get the signature to sign off on it. And we almost missed that deal because Michael Jackson was the one who had to sign off on the uh, for on the uh, on the final the final contract for that song to be used. And we man, we came like less than two hours. Wow. And they tracked them down somewhere, Nigeria, somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, they forget that he, you know, that he was the biggest person on it. I mean, oh, they, he'll be oh, in a recording okay. studio, then he says, I'll be right back. And they'll say oh, he's off goodness. in China opening up a mall or something. Oh, my goodness. It was, it was a really big deal, man. That's all I did with Rafael Sadiq. And, and, um, and uh, it was crazy, man. And John Singleton really wanted the song on the. In the movie, I mean, we almost we almost missed it, man, but we made it, you know. When did you start getting comfortable becoming a songwriter producer that you felt like, okay, this is no longer a gimmick, I and I'm comfortable in what I'm my, I'm creating and stuff? You know, to be honest with you, um I had as in the nineties, I was more still everybody knew DOA the bass player. Mm. You know, I didn't get away from that. It was just DOA the bass player. But, you know, in 92, I think I got a publishing deal. So now I'm a songwriter. I'm officially got a publishing deal. Uh, I did Bobby Brown. Also, after we did College Girl, I went on tour with Bobby Brown. Mm. He asked me to go on tour with him. And I did off that album. We toured. That tour was a long tour. It was over by a year. So halfway through, before they went to Europe, I asked Bobby, because I was getting offers to produce some songs, to produce. So I asked Bobby, I said, hey, man, do you mind, bro, if I take advantage of this opportunity that you gave me and Bobby was paying me a lot of money at the time but I wanted to go and experience with the production thing and um I'll find you a bass player and and I did he he didn't mind he said man D no go you know spread your wings man do your thing and so I I, I didn't do Europe 
I stayed back. Then that's when I got involved with this group called Black Girl. Oh, um, I'm a nineties girl. Yeah, uh, yep, Black Girl. Yeah, I didn't do nineties girl, but I did Crazy and Where We yeah. Go Wrong. And those, yeah, it's from Atlanta. I did half the album. Wow. Then I got, then I got involved with um, a group called Few Good Men, Daryl Simmons Group. Few Good yeah. Men. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A thing for you. I did a thing for you on the two songs on that group. And then so I was getting some production happening. I did some stuff with Bobby's uh label. He had a group called Smooth Silk. And I'm producing these artists that signed to labels. Um, and so I'm getting comfortable. I'm getting comfortable. Um, but I think it wasn't until and then I end up getting and getting some big gospel records, right? I start mm-hmm. working with Desmond Pringle. I work with Virtue on a Virtuosity record. And uh, but I think my big thing was when I did uh, when I did Smokey Norfolk. I need you now. When I did I need you now for Smokey Norfolk, big gospel artist out here. Okay. And then I did Tyrese lately. When I did Tyrese's lately, that's the record when I felt like okay, I really think I can do this on the R and B side because mm. late even to this day was still such a big record for him. But it was only I was only getting ones and twos. First I was getting filler songs. So mm-hmm. no singles. I was getting fillers. And then um then I was crafting my stuff, man. And I just started producing local artists, getting better, trying to get better. And uh, you know, crafting and you know working with Donald Lawrence, working with then I started working with Norman Brown. Then I started working with Wayman Tisdale. Then I started working with Angie Stone. Then I started working with so many people, man. Just music straight across the globe. Then I started studying other producers. Mm-hmm. And one of my, uh, my, my, you know, Rick Rubin is probably like my my favorite producer ever, besides you know Chucky Booker, of course. But Rick Rubin is one of my dudes that I, I idol because of the, his diverse, how diversity of a producer. Rick Rubin, Def Jam. Yes, yes. Wow. He's a diverse producer. You go from producing Def Jam, you know, Jay Z, yeah. to producing Johnny Cash, Dixie Chicks. Oh, Smith, Adele. Yeah, John Marie Herford was telling me the same thing yesterday when I interviewed yeah. him. He said Rick Rubin is he idolizes yeah, his yeah yeah and Jimmy and Terry too because Jimmy and Terry were the same way. Jimmy yeah. and Terry was still more urban, but Rick Rubin, you know, he, he's just the guy that I just wow. you know I just wanted to be like. So, um, but getting real hundred percent comfortable. It was later on, man. After. I finally got off tour with Lionel and just really, really getting to know myself as a producer after I finished with Lionel, then knowing what logic was about. Cause I never engineered. I never, um, I, I was always, the, I never wanted to know how to program. I didn't want to know about logic. I just wanted to pay somebody to do that and me do the, the other work. Okay. So um, then that's when I started getting comfortable in my skin and, um, and doing my thing. Yeah. Because you, you, in the later life, you did quite a bit with some of the more established people like Joe and Keith yes. Sweat. What was it like working with Joe? Because oh, he, was, he was a major songwriter, producer himself. So how did, how did... Joe was on my bucket list, man. And the first record I did with Joe's record called Rather Have a Love, which um, um, he heard that record. And then he brought me in to produce, um, co-produce his whole record with him to finish that production. Wow. So the Double Back album that went number one, couple of number one singles. Then we did Bridges went number one, a few number one singles, the single Love and Sex with and Kelly Rowland. And then, you know, then we did uh, If You Lose Her, it was off that album. Then we did 
you know, the hashtag, my name is Joe Thomas with, you know, so I can have you back and, and just a lot of great, a lot of great records. So working with Joe, he was on my bucket list. You know, he was one of the guys that I've always wanted to work with. And then working with Keith Sweat, that just, you know, that just happened through, through my good friend, Gerald Isaac made that happen with, uh, you know, his album that did good love. And then I ended up doing maybe three or four more songs on that record. And good love was the number one record for him. He hadn't had a number one in like 10, 15 years. Wow. From that. And then, you know, then it's just been crazy, man, because I, you know, some of my other favorite people, like I work with Lenny Williams, man, and working with Lenny Williams is one of my favorite artists that I've ever worked with. That I've been blessed to work with Shirley Murdoch, man. And, wow. and a lot of gospel artists. Don, Don, I won a Stella Award with Donald Lawrence, won Grammy Awards with Smokey. Another Grammy work with Norman Brown on the um, um, the uh, Chillin' album that won a Grammy. Um, so, and then I work with Wayman Tisdale, who's my brother, who I miss today dear, dearly. I produced a lot of records with him. So I've been able to be fortunate, man, going from the jazz world, R&B world. You know, then I work with Slim from 112. Then I work with uh, some rappers, Gorillaz. Oh, I produced the Booyah Tribe. I work with DJ Quick. So there's like so many people uh-huh. that... Yeah, been and then Dr. Cornell West. You familiar with Dr. Cornell West? He's a scholar here. He's the scholar here. Um, you've probably seen him, man. He's he's a, a black uh, advocate, just the advocate for black people in black colleges in the community. He's a scholar, book writer, um, uh, very popular gentleman. You probably seen him, man. He wears a suit all the time. Got a real crazy afro and the glasses. And oh the yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Dad, why are you saying? Yeah. So. So Dr. Cornell West did a record, and on that record, man, we had, you know, Talib, Kweli, Gerald LaVert, wow. we had Prince. Prince let us use a master off that record, off the oh. record. Wow. And it was almost like what he writes on books, we just did it on CD, on record. Tavis Smiley was part of the project. Uh, Eric Eric Michael Dyson, just so many people. So so the list, man, goes a long way. Work with Brian Coberson, work with George Duke on... Um, work with George Clinton, so the the list goes deep. Even deep, Kim, deep. you said mentioned mentioned Kim. Yeah, working with Kim right now as we speak. So I started working with Kim in 2017. We released the record uh, "Love Always Wins" album. The first single was called "Lie to Me." Mm-hmm. "Lie to Me" did really well for him. It was number one for eight weeks, um, and then been working with him ever since. He has a live album. His first live album is coming out sometime this year. We just it's, he did it at the Aretha. And I produced it, so I'm excited about it. Um, wow. He got a record out right now called Right on Time with him and Rick Ross that I did. And um, um, so, yeah, I mean, just working with just working with whoever I can. And then working with a lot of unsigned artists as well that I get, you know, working with this kid. I mean, this, the saxophonist named Sean Rayford. That's phenomenal. You know, and then we're working, working back with Chucky. Chucky has a new record coming out. And I'm really excited about that. So we get yeah, right here. Are you part of university? They oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No can you tell the fans what 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 university is? Because I, well, you know, university was when Chucky did Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation tour. He opened up. It was him, and then he his band. He just called his band University. Oh. Um, that's what the name of the band was, and his theory behind university was he wanted to just take people to school on the funk. Ah, so he called the band University. That's when he had Derek Oregon, Thomas Oregon, Rex Silas, uh, Dave Barry, myself, uh, Tim Bali, Tim Cornwell, and just so that same band. Um, today we had to rebuild the band, so it's different members. Okay, uh, 
only original members right now is just myself, Tommy O, and Chucky. So we're calling the University 2.0. Oh, that's why it's a 2.0. Okay. Yeah, so Chucky's coming back with University 2.0. Still very funky. We just did Yoshi's 9-11, and that's the first time we had played in 30 years. <laughs> but we have another show coming up March 3rd, uh, 2023. In Sacramento, March third, that we're that we're preparing for right now. So I'm excited, man, because it gives me a chance to play again. So I'm trying to get myself back in shape and get ready to get ready to do it, you know. So and then we're doing, we got shows in April. We got shows in in Inglewood for Nam Week. We're gonna be playing out there, and we got like the following day we'll be playing in San Diego. So we're excited about it. So just as we wrap up, I mean, it, 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 you know, I have to thank you for your story and your journey because it's it's been really fascinating. What is it that I think the question I had was about being a producer in 2023 isn't the same as in the 90s where you're, you're getting money like that. Um, actually, it's almost so, you know, people are producing at home on their laptops and getting beats. So what's the balance between you're asking some amazing questions. This is why I don't mind the time because you 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 ask great questions because you're right. Um, everything has changed. You know, you know, back in that time, I mean, producers were, you know, 50, 60, 75, 100, $125,000 a track, mm. you know, back in the, well, from what I know, the, the early 90s on yeah. up. The, to the early 2000s um it's changed well simply because everything you know record companies has changed the way we buy music has changed labels have changed mm. companies have downsized studios have downsized you can cut a record right now and you're in your in your in your backyard or in your bathroom or in your iphone so they know that you can't go in there asking for these six years <laughs> figure budgets no more you can't you can't justify that no more Plus, the budgets don't make sense for the type of they lost a lot. They lose. They lost lost a lot of money giving away these budgets, and records aren't selling. So mm-hmm. the record companies got smarter, and things just kind of like really, really downsized. So yeah, for a lot of producers. So what producers are doing now? They're doing like they're bartering. Let me do two for one. If I do this, give me the first single. They're making different kind of deals, you know. So yeah, the money has changed. Um, uh, the production, the producers' fees have seriously changed mm. um, um, because you can't really justify, you know, and not for everybody, not for every judge, just for most. <laughs> you know, I, I'm one in the most, okay? <laughs> so I know there's a different level for like Timberland and, and the Neptunes yeah. and Babyface. There are different levels, man, but uh, I'm thankful because I do have like working with artists who still have record deals. So a lot of artists don't even have record deals right now. Mm. So a lot of artists are, you know, self-investing. It's got investors are financing their own projects and, mm. you know, negotiating deals. And, you know, especially now producers, you can go to YouTube and buy a beat for a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. People find beat. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying so it, it, it didn't change. So it, it definitely has, the production thing has definitely changed. Streaming has changed. The way we buy records has changed. Everybody's catalog has changed. Um, so then, why of, are you doing it now? Then is it for? I don't. I don't do it for money at all. Okay. I don't. Do, I've never been in the business for money. Um, you know, n- never ever really been in the in the business for money. I've been. In, I'm in this business because I love it. And right now, um, 
to be honest with you, I've, I've pretty much done everything that I that I want to do. There's some things that's that that's not, that I'm stirring up now that I'm praying that will you know that 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 if this God's will 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 happen. And even if it doesn't, man, bro, I'm living a greedy life right now, man. Just, <laughs> You know, I, I don't never I, w- I wouldn't care if I don't never go to Europe again or, or travel ever again because I hate I hate I'm terrified of flying all my life. <laughs> it's like Mr. T in eighty. <laughs> hate flying all my life. So if I don't ever have to take another airplane trip or whatever, I'm cool. Um, <laughs> at my or at my early you know at my, at my age, I've done a lot yeah. and uh, pretty much yeah you know, I, I had small goals when I came in this business. Uh, only had two and. Those goals were very, very small. And um, so right now, um, there's some things that right, you know, that that like I said, that I'm working on. And if it if it manifests, it'd be great. And it will be probably like my the journey on my way out. Um, so I'm doing it because I love it. Yeah. Um like I said, man, I work with a lot of independent artists, even local artists, you know, local managers. Um, I work with a lot of unsigned artists. I, you know, so it's not like you know, um, um, I'm, I, you know, yes, you have to make a living and you have to take care of yourself and all that. But things are way different when it comes down to the business side of it. You have to find things. You have to find things. And you have to make be on. Uh, I tell producers all the time. You know, get 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 a community of where people want to work with you, want to hire you, want to use you. Get a get a get a, um, a a group of people. Get a group of clients, man. That will you know, that will pay you to come and produce a record on. They may be a school teacher. They may be a principal. They may be a doctor's. They may be doing it for a hobby, but get somebody that can pay you that money for your tracks or whatever that you can use and establish that. And mm-hmm. if you're good, if you're good, you can, you can make a cool living doing it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there are two questions people say who listen to this full interview say, what does the DOA stand for and what happened to flip? <laughs> So those are the two questions people might ask. So you want to answer both of them? Well, the DOAs definitely doesn't stand for for Derek Allen. People think is my my name is Derek Oliver Allen, <laughs> Derek Orenthal. I've been even called Orenthal Allen. You know, Derek, whoever, old old Dosphorus Allen. I don't know. Just with these crazy names. But my middle name is Lewis. So. DOA came from Chucky Booker. Chucky Booker gave me that name. I showed up at a studio one day. I played on a track. And he says, he says, yo, dude, he says, your name is going to be DOA. And this is what it stands for. He says, I don't want you telling nobody what it means. I said, wow. He said, really, man? You don't even. This is what it means. You don't want me to tell him. He says, man, don't tell nobody. So I'm like, okay, I didn't know if I, if I liked it or not. But after, after a while, I'm like, Chucky Booker gave me a name and I'm juice, right? So what I go do a few weeks later, I go buy me a little trucker's hat and I go get it's you know some letters put on it and I hold have the whole definition of the name going across the hat, right? Because I'm thinking I for, forgot what he said. I'm <laughs> so I'm rocking his hat. So now certain people are saying, "Oh, well, that's what DOA is." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah this came from Chucky Booker." So I never forget. I saw Chucky. He saw my hat. He said, "Dude, what are you doing?" I said, "What's up, man?" He said, man, "What's up with that hat?" I said, "You, you like it? It's funky, huh?" He said, "Man, give me that hat." He started crushing it. I said, "Man, what I tell you?" I said, "Oh no, nah, man!" I said, <laughs> I said, "Dude, I just got excited." So, 
some people know what DOA stands for, but I never tell nobody unless they get it, man. It's just something that <laughs> a lot of people have been wondering for years what it stands It definitely is not deaf on arrival or deaf dead on arrival or whatever it is. Right? <laughs> but um, it's like- What year thing. did you get it? What year did you get it? This was the year, man. Um, before, I got it before when I did, I went down and played on the remix of Less of That's My Honey. So this must have been 80, I want to say 88, no, 89, something like that. 88, 89. That's when he gave it to me, wow. man. I said, bro, I will not tell nobody. So <laughs> kind of keep it a mystery. People will definitely be wondering know what it is. Few people know what it is. And I hope those of you who think you know what it is, don't be typing it down there for the night. I say y'all, <laughs> but my best friend Flip is still around. Um, he's not playing anymore. He ended up injuring his hand. Oh, with Bobby Brown getting ready for the Bobby tour. He injured his hand, and he was never able to to come back and play drums again. Wow. So what he, so what he did was he started a nonprofit. He has a program called Mink, Musical Instruments in Kids' Hands, and what he's what he's done was was helping to put musical programs back in schools. And what he did was he took a big old U-Haul, man, and he tricked a U-Haul out and built this amazing studio. So it's mobile on wheels. And what he does, he takes his studio to low-income, low-privileged areas wow. to give kids music lessons, um, production lessons. He has different uh uh, workstations in the studio to where if somebody wanted to guitar lesson, well, he got, you know, he got Bobby G on there. He got some of the world's greatest guitars. If they want a bass lesson, they can pull up DOA. They can pull up whoever. They can pull up John Paris. They can pull up as a drum lesson and these kids. And he takes it to the prisons as well. So he's doing extremely well with his program. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty. It's, but he, is, he, he's not able to. He's not playing drums no more. He, he can sit down and play, but not like not intensely. But now his son, his name's Kid Frost, K Frost, is absolutely phenomenal. Just just a wizard on drums. Mm -hmm. But Flip's Flip's career ended right there. But he mm -hmm. still took it and bringing people joy and blessing people and doing something absolutely amazing. You know. Do you guys ever re re reminisce about the the Talk two? All the time. To <laughs> talk all the time, man. We talk about everything from quartet, you know, from kids. We talk yeah. we stories knee high, man. We, we we talk all the time. Yeah. What about the kid from um the, the white kid from Orange County? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's his his name was uh uh man, what's his name? Uh Perkins is his last name. Uh I can't think of his first name. But if there's anybody I would love to find, it would be him. Oh, Ed. <laughs> His name is Ed Perkins. If there's anybody that I, yeah, I would love to find him and his family just so I can thank him. Now we are in touch with the lady that lived in Redondo. Okay. And I, I definitely owe her a phone call. Her kids are grown now, but these people, man, were staples in our lives, man. Yeah. You know, I don't forget them, man. I really don't. People like O'Brien, staple in my life, man. Um, Elder Barge, Chucky, Michael Norfleet. Bruce Sterling, you know, Karen White. These people were staples in my life, man, that I just, they'll be my life forever, man. Just family forever. Well, Derek, I mean, the reason why we, I've done this and I do this is because of stories like you've just shared, you know, the the, the stories of, of um, you know, almost like the prodigal son. 
Yeah, but yeah. you didn't go. You didn't need to go back home. The stories of brotherhood and and perseverance and and um, you know and and you know that story about thinking that Bobby would be great on this, and then all of a sudden the divine inspiration of of his brother calling and stuff. So, I mean, these are things that are great for people to listen to, especially those who are struggling through, you know, financial crisis and stuff like yeah. that. So it's been, you know, and it's just about the, the heart that you have and everything. So it's been really great to be able to hear your story and, and your journey and, and stuff. As I said, I didn't go too deep into all the music because or all the tours, I know you, you worked with time and TLC and all that stuff, yeah. but Toby Mac and, and, and all this stuff, but it's, it was good just to be able to, to see and hear, Hear the journey. I think one question would be, would you ever not record I Want a Girl with somebody else? Because if you can't get the Bobby and Whitney one, at least you could get it's a good question. You know, you know what? And you own the, the song. I, the way I would probably do it is I probably wouldn't do it. I would probably have one of the, like some like I, I got a lot of producers that I mentor. I would probably have one of them do it. And just to see what they would do with it, I need a girl, and just you know, um, um, and see what would happen. It was, it was a great, it's a great song, man. To this day, it's a great song. I Man, I tell you what, when I definitely when I when I'm able to find a DAT player, and I know they're out there. I'm gonna find, I'm gonna download, I'm gonna send it to you so you can check it out. Oh, please do. Absolutely, I will. Please man. do. Sure. Please do. That sure. that would be well. As I end, as I end my interviews, I always ask my guests that if you were stuck in an elevator and you had to two and a half hours before they can get you out, what movie would you watch? Just to which one's your favorite movie that you you that you'd always like? This is my go to movie to watch. Uh across. You know, I was going to say across one hundred twenty fifth. Across 110th Street. Oh, I don't think I know that film. No. That's my favorite movie, man. I can watch that movie right now. Across 110th Street. That was uh, Bobby Womack did the soundtrack. And it was just an old gangster movie, man, from way back in the uh, in the 70s, man. I can, That's one movie that I can watch <laughs> all the time, man. So Across 110th Street, probably my favorite movie ever. You okay. Know. Or or the bad news bears. I like the bad news bears. <laughs> okay, I remember that one. I like, the, I like the bad news bears because I tell artists that I work with that are not that great that people laugh at, that I take a chance on, and I have one named Sean Rayford. You know, I started working with him five years ago, and uh, you get a chance check out Sean Rayford, man, man with a horn. Sean Rayford, man with a horn. He's not. A, he wasn't a great artist, but he was the hardest working man here in, in the city of Sacramento. Um, nobody outworked him. He wasn't very average horn player wow. even to this day even to this day he's still growing but it wasn't until i started working with him people couldn't believe that i was getting ready to work with him people would come to my studio knock on the door and say hey are you really working with sean rayford <laughs> wow I say, see i know what you're thinking i know we the bad news bears come back and holler at me about two years wow. give me two years come back and holler and knock on my door so now they're coming knocking on my door asking me how they can get a, a song on his next record wow yeah because he's winning right now. So so that's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. Okay. And then what's your favorite song? Your favorite song? I mean, not 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 yours, but like you know, my favorite song that I can listen to I have a couple of them, but my if I would have to say it's going to be Is It You by Lee Rittenauer. No. Is It You by Lee Rittenauer. 
that's, that's probably that song just does something to me every time. Wow. That's a hard that's a hard one because you know there's a few of them, but but that would be like a song that I could listen to and it'll put me just in a place. It'll always put me in that place at that time, at that moment, you know, um, it's that song. Oh. But Derek, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been great. It's been, um, it's been an, a fast, I've really enjoyed, enjoyed it. Hopefully it, <laughs> I didn't expect it to be two and a half hours, but I'm glad. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's all good, man. I appreciate you taking time out, man. And once again, I apologize for the. No, no, goodness, no. Yesterday was fine. And actually, you know, to me, it always seems like it works out for the best when when it when it when it, when it happens like this because I didn't expect the journey as as it is, and I don't do too much. You know, I, I do a little spot notes here, but I, I just like to hear hear the journey, hear hear how it goes, and and I've really been touched about a lot of what you what you said and stuff and. For for those who may be looking out for your, you're going to be touring uh, with university, doing some shows. Yes. You've yes. Um, we're still going to look out for your orchestra. You conducting yes. Yes. An, yes. an orchestra. And also, also, man, I'm really proud of this. If I can share with the audience, I just started my YouTube page. It's the uh, the DOA playlist. Y'all go check it out. I'm building it right right now, and go check out the the DOA playlist on YouTube. Subscribe, and my page is going to be kind of like what you're doing. Um, I'm just going to be interviewing a lot of my favorite people. Okay. Um, and, uh, so some people will be non-musical. Some people will be musical. My interviews are going to be only about 10 to 12 minutes, 15 at the most. And uh, uh, it'll be it'll be really, really sparse. But I'm really excited about it. It'll be really musical stuff, be interesting stuff that kind of like, you know, that people don't know about the artists. They know about, you know, the, the what's on the surface. But I'm kind of hitting things that people really don't know. So, um Right now, the first thing on there is I did a tutorial on baseline, frontline, and uh, and then they can go see some of the uh, the Yoshi's show. I got the mm -hmm. Yoshi thing, but my very first post will be an interview I did. My first interview is with Chucky Booker, of course. <laughs> okay. so, so so yeah, the the DOA playlist, y'all go check that out, man. I'm excited about that. So and yeah. you can follow, follow me on Instagram at DOA Allen as well on Instagram at DOA Allen. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be sure to make sure that that, that this goes Ooh. out. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I appreciate In fact, you know, I actually, I was supposed to interview Chucky probably back in October. Uh -huh. And and the same issue, same issues with the timing. And at one in yeah. the morning, he says, yeah, are you, are you logging in? And so we've never, we've not been able to reschedule since. But as I said, it's, you know, that, that, that you know, hopefully we'll, I'll be able to get, get him on board. Cool. Before cool. he comes out with his album stuff, yeah, yeah. absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah, a great body of work. It's gonna be. I'm gonna let him tell you about it, but be be on the lookout. Great body of work. Yeah, well, yeah, if, we, if um, but yeah, it's been great, Derek. Um, normally my my interviews are probably it takes I I I break them into sections and and put it out over a week. So, yeah, um, man. time, man. Just, just yeah. talking to you, my friend. Yeah, it's it's been sure. great. I really being blessed by, by 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 what you what what you what you're doing and as i said the story you told about ribbon nation i i i, I just hopefully that that's something you you do teach other people about you yes. know just that if if you can take the gift and are yes. able to just imagine 
people being transformed when they hear the music. Yes, that, absolutely. That, yeah. absolutely. That's exactly what that experience was. None like it. None like it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Derek, okay. I appreciate it. It's midnight. It's half past midnight here. So all right, man. Get you some rest, my brother. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, you know what? I do need is a couple of pictures because there's no hardly any pictures of you. I mean, I had to use one with you having with the dreadlocks. So it shows yeah, you I'll, I'll send you some. I'll send you some uh, shots after I hang. I'll email them to you. That'll be great. Thanks, all right, Derek. All right, my brother. Appreciate it, man. Take all right, it bro. easy. Yep. Hey guys, thanks for watching. Thanks for being part of the Halftime Chat community. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, but most importantly, why don't you consider being a member as a way of supporting the channel, but also getting a lot of videos ahead of time, a lot of behind the scenes stuff, and some exclusive content that doesn't get shared. But anyway, thanks for watching and thanks for being part of Halftime Chat.